Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Stephen Zuber. And with us today, we have a special guest, Cornelius. Hello. Hello, Cornelius. You are joining us from Central European Time Zone, so thank you very much. I know it's pretty late over where you are. Well, it's, uh, it's 9 p.m., so not, not too late. I guess it depends on what you consider late. Like, my mother is old now, and she considers 9 p.m. late. But yeah, I usually don't go to bed till midnight, so... Yeah, yeah, same. Usually I don't go to bed until uh, after midnight. <laughs> Excellent. And normally this would be the part where we say, but first we talk about the less wrong posts, but we have changed our format recently and do the less wrong posts at the end now, so we are just going to go right into the main topic. As soon as we do introductions. As soon as we do introductions, yes. Uh, Cornelius, yeah. how, who are you and how do we know you? So uh, I am a, uh, a long-time reader of less wrong. Uh, I was in... Uh, Bayesian conspiracy uh, Discord server for a while, um, and uh, and uh, I've been talking uh, uh, on and off with um, with Ineash about um, political philosophy, uh, especially monarchy. Uh, I'm a monarchist, uh, which is uh, which is a uh, an unusual position to have uh, in uh, contemporary times, of course. Long live um, the queen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, all right. And, uh, yes, uh, so that's about it, I think. So our topic today is going to be about monarchy. And I think the first thing most people will want to know is what kind of monarchy are you talking about? Is this like monarch appointed by God? Is this uh, the figurehead that England has? What's going on? Right. So uh, so that's a very uh, excellent question, of course. So actually, we... we um uh, we have the uh, word monarchy all the way back from uh, from ancient Greek. Uh, the word hasn't changed a lot since then. I think I don't know how ancient Greek is pronounced, but something like monarchia, uh, and it literally comes from um, soul, uh, a word meaning soul and a word meaning command. Um, and uh, and so it was actually quite a general term. It meant uh, basically having one person uh, issuing commands from the top of a hierarchy. It didn't refer to a particular form of of monarchy, um, like uh, European kingship, um, it was uh, so. So anything from a uh, well, I mean, they they, uh, they were speaking strictly of government, but uh, but our our concept of a CEO or a president is actually not all that different from the uh, from the um, conception of monarchy you will find in uh, in uh, Plato and in uh, Aristotle. You will you, they would probably have seen these as a kind of, of Monarch. So, uh, I have, I have essentially two positions that I would call monarchists. And one is sort of the weaker, uh, position and one of them is a stronger position. The weaker position is this idea that our government should have a, uh, have a single person wielding, uh, a lot of executive power. Um, and, and here is a precedent with a lot of executive power would qualify as a, uh, as a monarch. And then my stronger opinion is, uh, is hereditary monarchy where the, um, where the monarch uh, owns the country as personal property. Okay. Or private property, I guess. <laughs> so if you think that the CEO and the president count as a weaker form of monarchy, does that mean we already have monarchy in many places, in your opinion? Yes. Yes. Uh, as, a, as a sort of hierarchical structure, uh, basically almost any functional institution at a large scale is a monarchy. If you if you go to a car dealership or a restaurant or uh or, or a fast food food store. Um, there's probably a single person uh, in charge of it, uh, building executive command over the uh, over the organization. And this, um, in the broadest sense, could be considered a kind of 
monarchy. Um, and you will notice that this is this is basically a um, in in the vast majority of cases there are some exceptions here and there, but in the vast majority of cases this is a necessary condition to have a functional organization. I have a quick, I guess, qualifier on that. Wouldn't I? I and I don't know the specifics about like McDonald's, for example, but I believe Tesla has like a board of directors, right? Right. So, uh, so that's where we are, uh, that's where it gets a little bit complicated because, of course, the board of directors um, uh, is uh, is attempting to keep the uh, CEO in charge, uh, in keep the CEO uh, responsible without um, while while still letting the CEO be in charge. Right? Uh, they're not supposed to be basically micromanaging every single executive uh, decision, uh, or at least uh, if they are doing that, it's uh, it's probably not a good thing for uh, <laughs> for the company. Uh, that it has gotten to that point. Um, so, um, so ideally, you have uh, you have a board of directors that holds a, uh, a an executive head of the organization accountable. Um, but uh, for the for a variety of reasons, this is actually pretty difficult to uh, implement in um, in terms of, of uh, political governance. Uh, the American um, this sort of political system uh, described in the American Constitution. Seems to be an attempt at doing this. You have these, uh, uh, what are they called again? Um, congressmen? The, uh, uh, yes, but not, not the congressmen, the, the people who, uh, who elect the, oh, the uh, electors. You, you, the yeah, ele- yeah, the electors. Are they just called electors? They are just called okay. the electors, yeah. Okay, yes. Uh, you have the electors that, that elect the, uh, the elect the president. Um, and, uh, and these are sort of a kind of, uh, Quasi board of directors, and and so uh, is the larger uh, voting population. Um, but the electors and, uh, only decide once every four years, whereas a yes. board of directors could kick out a CEO at any time if they think he's doing a terrible job, right? Right, right. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's. Um, I mean, you can impeach. Uh, you can impeach the president. So to an extent, you can also <laughs> kick out a president at any point when. You think the president is doing a terrible job. You, you can even uh, impeach him twice. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, I am generally generally uh, favorable towards um, longer uh, terms uh, governments that that's, uh, stay in power for for a longer time. Um, because what you basically have when you have a government that only stays in power for a, uh, for four years or eight years is uh, a lack of long term interest in the uh, in the government or in the organizational structure. Uh, so the ideal structure um, is if you have an uh, executive that also has a very long-term uh, interest in the organization. All right. Actually, before we jump, go to that, which is interesting in its own right, but I, I did want to ask before we continue there, do you think it's a good idea or a bad idea to have a board of directors that can kick out the executive? Because it seems like, to me, that goes against the idea of monarchy. Yes, so it is a kind of uh, a kind of limitation on monarchy as to whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. I'm not sure that's. Um, I think that might be contin- contingent on uh, um, on a lot of things. Uh, for example, um, what is the alternative? Is the alternative that the that the monarch uh, personally has the majority? Uh, well, not the monarch. The uh, CEO has the majority share of the organization. I think that's actually a generally. Um, if you can have that combina- that uh, combination of a um, of an industry that's sort of passed down, uh, uh, you know, a railroad uh, company, for example, that's passed down from generation to generation, with the majority share staying within the family, um, 
where the uh, majority shareholder also acts as the executive head of the organization. I think that's uh, that's generally the ideal um, because you have basically uh, you have basically a situation there where the um, where, where you avoid the uh, principal agent problem, where the person who uh, makes the decisions is also the person who uh, stands to benefit or lose. But does that doesn't say anything about whether a, a board of directors being able to kick them out is good or bad, though, does it? Well, so a, uh, so I would say that if that is the alternative, um, then having a board of directors uh, to uh, to be able to kick down the uh, um, the executive head would probably be um, a degradation compared to that. It would probably be, uh, not be an improvement. But if the alternative is an uh, an executive that doesn't uh, somehow doesn't hold a majority share and still doesn't have still doesn't it still isn't accountable to a uh, board of directors, um, then the board of directors is probably an improvement. Okay, I see. Because um, you think that he's and, more uh, impacted by the company failing. Yes, and I think it might also. Um, I think uh, actually uh, the sort of general culture of uh, not the sort of general mass culture, but the the culture within um, within the corporate world surrounding uh, how. Uh, how these relationships between uh, board of directors and and uh, and the organizations they are uh, they are on the board for, um, I think that might also impact basically how uh, how good this uh, how well functioning the structure is. Okay, well, as, I mean, maybe this does work for companies, and it, it seems like it does work at any rate. Um, one one of the reasons that we don't see as many co-ops might be this. I know that's something that comes up often on the Discord, but. Uh, this is not quite the same thing as having a country where the ruler is in charge of, you know, in the military. And if a company is run poorly and collapses, then some people lose their jobs and that sucks, but it's not the end of the world. Whereas if a ruler rules badly, it might actually be the end of the world. Yes. So that's, that's a danger, right? Um, and uh, there's this, uh, there's this, Idea you'll find among um, among rationalists in general, they're not actually so much in favor of democracy as they are against uh, dictatorship. Uh, you will find there there are some people who are just very enamored with the idea of democracy, who believe that uh, democracy is an ideal in itself and not just the least bad among different options. Right? Um, you will find people who say that um, that a system in which people get equal representation is inherently uh, is inherently fair, uh, which is uh, which runs into problems when you consider minorities who are always getting uh, who, who could always be script, uh, getting screwed over in um, in a democracy without constraints on uh, to to prevent uh, the tyranny of the majority. Um, but uh, yeah, there are people who are very enamored with this form of government. But uh, the sort of the rationalist take on on the need for democracy is usually that uh, the alternative is to have a single person in charge, which is a single point of failure. It could go terribly wrong with uh, a single point of failure, um, because this this danger that uh, that this, the danger you speak of, where a country going wrong could lead to a terrible war, is uh, is really true of, of all ways a country could uh, could be going wrong. So what you're really getting at there is that it might be more likely to go wrong under. Uh, uh, under a single executive head than uh, than under a decentralized system, right? Maybe I think that, like, I mean, I I'm not a political theorist, so I'm kind of just in my mind juggling three examples. I'm basically thinking of like Tesla, where Elon Musk is sort of like the king, except he has a board of directors that he ostensibly has to answer to, and then we've got the right. United States where it has all the failings, like you said, of somebody moving in for four years or on four year cycles, where 
two and a half of those years are spent campaigning for re-election. Um, and then let's look at like Russia as a third example, right? Um, where we've got basically a king over there who's in, who's the head of, I think, every branch of government. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And so I think they all have their strengths and weaknesses, but those are the kind of, if we can so anchor in those examples or, is, or another one, yeah. You could, uh, you could say that... Uh, the, the danger that a uh, that a government might go to it uh, might head into a terrible terribly destructive war um, that's that's just the same whether it's a uh, monarch failing or a democracy failing right a, a democracy failing could also potentially you know decide to genocide a bunch of people or or uh, go into a, a nuclear war or or similarly similar um, but but um, People generally often perceive that risk to be lower because they say that uh, that if you have a monarch in charge, there's, there's one mind that everything depends on, and that, and that mind could go mad. Uh, whereas it's uh, they deem it less likely that an entire population in a democracy could go mad. Um, I'm not actually sure I would deem that less likely than, uh, than <laughs> me, one head me of state going mad. Maybe maybe a room full of people all going crazy is less likely than an entire nation or a single person. But yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, we've uh, we've all probably seen. Uh, uh, we can probably all think of, of several cases of each of these um, happening. Yeah. Bef- so um, before we continue, Jace, did you want to jump in with anything? I'm just listening. Okay. Uh, well, you were talking about the the best um, the best timeline is to have just like one person in charge for a very long time because then they uh, really care about the future outcomes. But I believe. One of the things that a uh, a large country has to juggle is the fact that there are many vying factions within it, and it's it's less bitter to think that the opposing faction is in power if you know that in five or ten years you might come back into power, whereas if you know the opposing faction gains control for an unknown number of decades, you might want to have a violent revolt to stop that. Right, but this this way of uh, of viewing factions is really a, um, a very democratic phenomenon that has arisen as a result, basically, of, of mass politics. Uh, before that, you still have competing interests. You have basically interest groups. But what you see in, for example, um, in a, you know, Cold War, uh, in the Cold War era, you would see people writing to, uh, uh, writing letters to, um, to, you know, uh, communist dictators writing, uh, you know, policy suggestions on how to fix the problems of, of uh, USSR, right, um, and uh, and of course, the, what what actually happened wasn't that we were, you know, when when USSR was was in decline, uh, and everybody could tell it was in decline. There were people who were writing how to fix these things, uh, uh, but of course, what happens is not um, that uh, that you write suggestions and then they fix it. What happens is that the whole thing collapses, right, and the the Berlin Wall, for example, is, it gets torn down. So. The natural way for people uh, of interest groups to think, if in the presence of basically a dictator, is to try to sway the uh, the actions of that dictator. Because uh, well, it depends actually on on um, on whether you have basically a fascist dictator or a monarchical dictator. Because uh, the the difference there is that the fascist dictator is a uh, is a phenomenon of mass politics who depends on the active support of a mass movement. He rules typically paramilitaristically, right? Um, and, and that requires sufficient uh, political enthusiasm in at least a, a segment of the population to uh, to constitute this paramilitaristic rule, right? Um, and you can usually only foster that level of engagement by uh, by turning some portions of the population against other portions of the population. A monarch, as such, is trying to uh, to 
maintain a very functional um, civilization very long term so that it can be profitable for him. Uh, so at least, um, so a monarch can, can have access to all the riches he wants. Um, there's, there's really no reason to turn, the, uh, to, to have a tax rate, uh, where you expect 20% of people's income as your, uh, as, as your own income when, uh, when 5% already gives you more than enough purchasing power to buy whatever you want, right? So what a monarch wants to do there is to have a stable regime where he doesn't get, uh, overthrown. I, I do remember that this was the thing that really drew my attention on the Discord, that uh, you were saying that fascism um, runs on mass movements which require division within a society, whereas a monarchy doesn't, and so a, uh, a monarch would prefer to have a united society and not divide the people against, you know, whatever hated outgroup there is. Right. And, and that also, you are very much against fascism and fascist dictatorship, which is why you want a monarchy instead, which yes. seemed like... yes. A strange, to me, that felt like a very strange contradiction because in my mind, there is like, I, I don't see a difference between a monarch dictator and a fascist dictator. They're both dictators with absolute power. Right. So, uh, yeah, this is, uh, this is sort of the, the, the tricky part of this perspective to grasp, really. Um, and it, uh, it took quite a while for me to grasp this myself. Um, especially because it gets somewhat obfuscated because there are actually two sort of, uh, Two different tendencies within uh, neo reaction, as as, as uh, people call monarchism. Um, uh, one faction is basically a kind of uh, quasi fascist uh, faction um, that's very related to the alt right. It's like a pipeline from the alt right into uh, advocating a, uh, a basically fascist dictatorship uh, and calling it a monarchy. Um, and what you'll see is basically these are people who uh, who are deeply uh, red pilled uh, and who would only. Uh, uh, but, but actually, uh, upon further examination, they're not all that deeply red-pilled because they would only have been red-pilled as a result of workism, and they would not have been red-pilled if it had still been the 90s, right? If it had been before all this, uh, all these work movements came along, you know, uh, critical race theory, intersectional feminism, um, queer theory, uh, fat studies, and uh, disability studies, and so on. If it, if it had been before that, a lot of these people wouldn't have been red-pilled in the first place. Um, and... Um, so it's a very sort of superficial version of monarchism. Um, so what you'll see is if you look at the other movement, it's, it's really very non, uh, non-fascist. Um, because it's, uh, fascism is, is, uh, is inherently populist and, uh, and Yavinian new, new reaction is what, uh, what you'd call right-wing elitism. It's, uh, it's, it's sort of disdainful of mass movements in general, seeing fascism as an essential, an essentially democratic movement. Um, and, and, uh, so that's sort of the hard intuition to grasp, um, because of course, if you, um, um, because of, of course, if, if you look at, uh, at contemporary political discourse, uh, in, in media, uh, and in academia, you will see populism described as one of the ma- major threats against democracy. But what, what we really have is a kind of democracy of the elites where, um, uh, nobody would say anymore. Well, okay. Some people still say that, uh, uh, Vox Populi, uh, Vox Dei, you know, uh, that the voice of the people is the voice of God. Um, but we see how that turned out in a lot of fascist dictatorships where there was, you know, uh, popular mass support for the fascist dictator. It may not have been, you know, uh, the, you know, the throne, so to speak, may not have been seized by democratic means exactly, but, uh, but they have suddenly had the support of a mass movement. Um, so we wouldn't say now that, uh, that the will of the masses is always just the way to go because we see how that can fail. Um, 
so we say instead that that the masses need education and by there at that point we're actually already sort of saying that we really want the power to to lie with educated people who know what is what is good um mm-hmm. and uh and the uh you know the classical greek philosophers would not call that a democracy they would call it an oligarchy and uh and the sort of the things they describe as a democracy is really much more akin to a much more akin to um what we would call populism today um so the intuition here to get is that that these sort of uh, fascist movements are actually the essence of democracy and uh, and and this sort of um, process-oriented system where you have uh, uh, where you have uh, experts that politicians defer to, uh, you have uh, Congress people Congress people who don't get switched out a lot. Uh, you have a uh, a court system with the Supreme Court, which actually is in charge of a lot of you know civil rights advances. Um, all of this sort of process. Uh, based system is basically an oligarchy it's a sort of uh, democracy of experts versus an oligarchy i well i have a very hard time arguing with that necessarily because it does seem that everybody wants all the voters to be educated and um the the traditional uh solution that's offered is that we should just educate everybody but obviously that doesn't work entirely and um and it kind of betrays that they do want the people who are voting to be the educated people but on the other hand like i i feel as soon as you take the vote away from a group of people whether they be the uneducated or whoever they are then you set those people up for exploitation and i'm really yes. not comfortable with that and that Me is neither i thought part of what democracy not, was supposed to stop i'm not uh i'm not comfortable with the idea of uh of a sort of limited suffrage. Uh, I would rather just have no suffrage. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, um, the problem is, a, uh, <laughs> yeah. but uh, with with a um, so with a monarch, you don't really have an incentive to to drive factions apart or to like select one faction as your favorite group because this creates instability. And instability, political instability, is really the bane of your existence as a monarch because uh, because you're kind of doing quite well as a monarch financially. Like uh, even if you're only able to extract like four percent of the GDP as as, uh, as your own income, right? Um, that's still a lot of money, right? You could be like the world's first trillionaire easily as a, as the monarch of USA, right? Um, so you're not really worried about, um, about getting bribes. You're not worried about financial interests. You're not, uh, what you really want there is stability. Uh, you want to basically be able to keep this position because if you don't keep it, but first of all, there's a, it's a good chance that you lose it in some form of revolution that may or may not result in in losing your head from like a guillotine uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's definitely something you want to avoid um mm-hmm. I, but it could also be like assassinations from like various elite power groups uh so you want to avoid these things by basically creating a uh, a society where people are basically content enough to not want radical change well that'd be that'd be awesome if everyone was that content but i think you'd have a hard time making everyone that happy i guess what i'm curious about is of course i mean government is difficult uh, governance is difficult right <laughs> but... jace you had something uh well steven wasn't finished oh uh-huh. i was just gonna say like the and this might be broad or well, i'll just ask like the the question of succession um how do you decide who gets to be monarch and if that person has a 45 caliber brain hemorrhage who gets to take that person's place so i would say generally speaking that um if the uh, if the royal family is even remotely adequate, um, they're in a better position to handle these things than uh, <laughs> than any kind of political theorist. But I would also say that these are really very long range concerns. We don't Sorry, actually the, we don't uh, even know that um, the royal this family is assumption. What? What do you mean by the royal family? 
Well, there will be, uh, you know, I, I advocate a, a hereditary monarchy. That's my sort of uh, stronger position, whereas my weaker position is just like... But how do, I guess power. what Stephen was asking is, how, how do they get chosen? You're saying just kind of choose at random? Okay, are you talking about? Well, I think Stephen was talking about uh, succession of monarchs rather than the. Well, he also said, "How do you just of, pick, like, who gets so to be monarch?" The succession, the succession is largely driven. Uh, in the usual case, it's driven by the previous monarch uh, who chooses an heir, uh, usually or a heir. How do you say that? Yeah, heir, mute or not? Yeah, yeah. Silent age. Uh, to um, oh yeah, silent. That's uh, yeah. Um, English is not my native language. I mess up sometimes, but uh, yeah. So um, he points an, an heir, and um, and that would be by, by default the successor. Um, and uh, and typically um, that would be the firstborn son. Uh, there are various reasons for that, having to do with biology, and uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> there would be somewhat if um, some other digression to get into. But um, the thing is, if if uh, if the monarch is genuinely sovereign, he basically has power to uh, to make a lot of decisions and that will typically also include who uh, like he's sovereign because basically because he commands the loyalty of uh, of important people right um, so you're thinking and, a lot uh, like the uh, line of Merlin unbroken where a really good monarch would choose a really good successor which was yes. probably be one of his children but not necessarily right right and it would also probably be one of his children just because he is uh, you know he's biased towards his children as a parent right? but, but and, what... and of course that's not a perfect situation but the thing is well jace wanted to know not who this... chooses who the yeah. first merlin is so the first merlin um merlin does i think um stick. basically what happens is things will continue to deteriorate that's also one of my sort of uh, one of my theses is that things are getting worse, not better. We, are, we have a lot of, uh, of statistics that say things are getting better. Uh, interestingly, so did the Romans during the fall of Rome. Uh, I don't know if it was statistics uh, exactly, but like the, the, uh, if you look at like um, written sources from that time, uh, from a lot of of of, uh, of, of, of the better of uh, Roman citizens, uh, their letters to each other and so on, uh, you will find that they had absolutely no idea that Rome was falling. Um, that rumors in decline, uh, and it's sort of I see the same thing right now. We have uh, we have you know more sophisticated uh, ways of, of um, ways of, of arguing that uh, that things are getting better. We're uh, looking at the GDP. I'm, I'm critical of the GDP as a metric for a variety of reasons, but um, it's uh, it's so I see things will, are getting worse, and I believe as as they get worse and worse, people will be more and more desperate. And when somebody some like um, obviously worth worthy leader comes along, uh, it will be very easy for the worthy leader to get support. And this is where it's a bit dangerous because the first worthy leader, uh, well, not the first, the first uh, leader that um, that the population made him worthy may not necessarily actually be worthy. And so the risk is that you might get a fascist dictator instead of a monarch. Or a Donald and that's Trump. sort of what I hope to not happen. Um, I think we have a lower risk at the moment of that happening because um, people are still sort of... Uh, our culture still remembers uh, Hitler and Stalin and doesn't want to repeat uh, this sort of uh, faction-based, uh, very ideological leadership. I think they will prefer to go for somebody very sober, at least if they have the choice between some some rabid ideologue and a very sober uh, leader. It doesn't they seem to be the trend in leaders that we've been choosing. No, but I don't think... 
or elevating I to positions if, of if, power. Uh, I think if presidents had more power than uh, than they do, I think if they actually had something like absolute power, I think a lot more people would be hesitant to vote for Trump. I think actually the sort of uh, limited power of the presidency had, has made people less reluctant to vote for Trump than they otherwise would have been. Hmm. That's um, a charitable take. But, I, I'd have to think about that. Yes, I'm. Uh, I mean. Uh, but I'm not sure this is uh, a particularly solvable thing. I don't think it's. Um, I don't think the present world order can be saved. I'm not really. Um, I'm sort of seeing the deterioration as as basically irreversible at this point, and and the whole thing is going to collapse eventually. Um, I'm not. I don't really know of any ways of optimizing your relative likelihood of getting a sober monarch relative to a fascist dictator, except maybe you know, advocating this form of government as I'm doing now. Uh, Is there but, um, anyone that you think would probably make a decent sober monarch? Me. <laughs> well, so, uh, uh, um, I would say you want somebody with a lot of uh, a lot of management experience. Um, uh, so you could look, you could like go through a list of CEOs or, uh, you know, um, Curtis Javin was actually asked the same question on a, um, in a uh, podcast with Michael Mellis. Uh, and he thought of it and he, uh, gave the answer, um, Gordon Ramsay, um, because he would go into, you know, he would go, um, uh, into the state departments, uh, go into, he would like, uh, I would watch that TV show and go into the state <laughs> de- departments, uh, walk in freezer and, and like see all the, uh, you know, all the rotten, uh, food they have there and be like, you're funding this agency. Why the fuck are you funding this agency? Uh, wait, can I, can I swear on this show? <laughs> oh yeah, totally. It's a podcast okay, and we swear, swear uh, all the fucking time. So, okay. So, uh, yeah. So, so they'd be like, uh, so, so, so you'd have Gordon Ramsay who'd be like, uh, yeah, let's, let's take a look at the state department's walk-in freezer. And, 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 and he'd be like, within a moment, he'd be like, what the fuck is this? Why, why are you funding this guy? So stop funding this guy, you know? Um, and, uh, and, and so there was, there was the answer Curtis Yavin gave. I think you can, of course, do better than, uh, than Gordon Ramsay. I think he was giving it partly in jest. Um, but, uh, but also he had to choose somebody that people know and recognize, right? If he just chose some, like, some CEO on, somewhere on the for- Fortune 500 uh, so, list, right? Yeah. So it seems like one of your major, um, Thinking points here is that an absolute monarch would do a better job of um, stabilizing society and giving people enough contentment in their lives that they don't want a major revolution than right. our current democratic system does. Right, um, but I think it's also um, do you- it's also a matter of I see basically the status quo as essentially dystopian, uh, which is uh, not how most people see it. But I think most people are very distracted by uh, by culture war and, and and which makes them feel important and sort of distracts them from really how depressing and dystopian uh the, the status quo is um and so i see i see um so in a sense this, this kind of yavinian monarchism is basically a, a kind of disillusioned libertarianism right libertarians are very often very critical of of this new deal post new deal era where, where we have this giant state that doesn't allow you to do anything pretty much um because everything is Held in a regulatory stranglehold. I mean, it's very difficult to to build a factory, for example, um, and um, and and there's a massive tax burden and massive barriers to entrepreneurship in general. Um, so, but but what you'll notice is that uh, libertarians tend to be quite intelligent. Whether you agree with them or not, you can usually tell that they're they're pretty intelligent. Um, but you'll also notice that they're not really making a lot of progress. Yeah. Understatement um, of the year. <laughs> they're uh, they're not they're not winning, right? Um, so um, so this kind of monarchism is basically uh, libertarianism that has gotten tired of not winning, right? Um, and, uh, but since um, libertarianism so the- is so unpopular, wouldn't that necessitate 
some sort of military coup and installing someone that is not popular and uh, thus a recipe for disaster? Right. So um, you basically get in trouble when you have these um, these paramilitaristic coups. It's uh, very heavily implied in uh, in Curtis Yavin. He doesn't. He never states it explicitly. Uh, I, I guess I'm going to like reveal the the big secret here. But uh, it is that. Um, Whereas a fascist dictator rules paramilitaristically, a monarch principally rules militaristically. So, so yes, there's a, it's a, uh, it is a fundamentally militaristic form of government. Um, but this is quite different from uh, from what we associate with the uh, with with uh, government by force, because what we associate with government by force is really more paramilitaristic. It's really more like a um, because the military is really a natural aristocracy. It develops a lot of uh, a lot of, of very great virtues that just do not exist in paramilitaristic forces. Um, and, uh, and so it is just, um, um, so, um, new reaction in general, um, has this basically, uh, Machiavellian analysis of politics and governance, um, where it is understood that any form of governance involves significant coercion, including these, uh, these, uh, liberal democratic, uh, governments, uh, that, that, um, that, uh, permeate the Western world. And, uh, and sort of the intuition here is that it is better to have, uh, honest militaristic, um, uh, coercion than either, um, dishonest, like hidden, uh, militaristic coercion or honest paramilitaristic coercion or even, uh, dishonest paramilitaristic coercion. You want it to basically be as honest and legitimate as possible. Um, because it's it's so the idea is basically you cannot avoid having uh, having substantial coercion as a basis of government. So you want it to at least be be honest. Interesting. Okay. I don't think we're gonna be able to settle like the idea of who gets to take charge first or like how that would work. Yeah. Um, you know, if it is yeah. a if it is a militaristic uprising, it's just gonna be like the biggest group with the most guns. And well, no, so that would be a paramilitary. I, what it the, would what? be that would be the paramilitaristic thing. Um, it would just be literally the army, the existing army, <laughs> and um, um, there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, institutions that would be that would have to be remade. But, but it would be very top down. It would not be like random soldiers in charge of this. If this would be like the the, uh, the top people in the army, um, which are uh, well, I mean, so so USA is it's a bit problematic because it's um. Um, I, I wouldn't. I, I don't think you would have a militaristic coup. Uh, I don't think you would have a militaristic coup in USA, and I don't think it would be advisable to have one. Um, so this is more after the monarch, monarch has gotten in charge. It is still. It is sort of. Um, it is a sort of fundamentally militaristic form of government after having been instated. But I think it would be instated basically through democratic means, and uh, and of course I, I'm not very favorable to that because uh, because to me democratic means quasi-fascist, and this is basically the point where it's most likely to go wrong. Um, it's, uh, it's the instation, the, uh, the initial instation of the monarch. That's that's where this danger lies. Um, because um, when you democratically put a, a, a monarch in charge, it's, it's, that's, that's a process that's not too dissimilar from democratically putting a fascist dictator in charge. Ideally, you should have uh, have uh, some to some extent uh, a um, bipartisan support of the uh, of the monarchical dic- uh, dictator. You cannot like you cannot elect a monarch in spite of half the population. You can, however, elect a monarch in spite of twenty percent of the population or something. You don't need like full or thirty percent or whatever. You don't need full uh, majority support in both factions, but you do at least need it to um, like you can have one faction that's, that's 
mostly in favor in another faction that's divided that can work. So basically, but, uh, the monarch is the head of the military, and the military runs the government. Yes. Uh, well, so it's um, well. So I mean, military and and police, of course. It's a uh, so the military is a kind of a so the function of government is to monopolize violence, and this is a. Um, this is, of course, what uh, anarcho-capitalists also believe, and, and they believe that this is a bad idea, that we shouldn't have a monopoly of violence. Uh, they believe in the non-aggression principle, and they have various ideas on how the non-aggression principle can be enforced in a decentralized way. Um, I don't think the non-aggression principle can be enforced in a decentralized way. I think you basically need, um, I think you need a monopoly of vi on violence because, uh, the alternative to having a monopoly of violence is to have polycentric violence, which is the definition of uh, of war. <laughs> right? It's like you uh, you have um, uh, if you don't have a monopoly on violence, you either ha it's either because you know you have nations at war, or it's because there's like uh, gang wars. Okay. Um, so uh, yes, uh, rulership happens through. Uh, if, so it can happen basically either through uh, either through force or through uh, uh, persuasion. Um, and uh, and in this sort of civilized era, we might think that persuasion sounds a lot better than than rulership through force. Uh, except that um, persuasion does not actually have to be voluntary. Uh, what it, what rulership through uh, persuasion means is uh, thought control. It means rulership through thought control, and that's a very sort of totalitarian premise. Uh, yeah. And uh, well, I, um, I want to. I want to back up and tie this to a thing that you said earlier about a monarchy would be better at uh, providing for its citizens because it wants stability and it doesn't want its citizens fighting each other. But then you also say that a monarchy rules primarily through force and that this is okay. I don't see how, if they're ruling through force and they're keeping stability through force, why, what makes you think there's an incentive to also make the citizens as best off as possible? Because in general, you, you just cannot have... Uh... A, um, a government that stays in power if it's hated by all its subjects. Like, it just doesn't work. Uh, you could, you could maybe maintain that, uh, that state of affairs for a while, but like, riots will get more and more intense and eventually it just won't work. It will just sort of break down. Um, but in, an, and, in uh, a monarchy, if something is breaking down, the way to change governments is a violent revolution of some kind, whereas in a non-monarchy, you can like, vote or something, which I think is much better yes, because at least vote, our cities... What I would say is what I would say there uh, is uh, voting doesn't really change the power structure. That's why this, this works. This, the, the amount of chaos involved in a change of power is basically just a function of how thorough this change of power is, like how much power is actually shifting. Um, although you can sometimes do these very orderly changes of power, like the fall of the Berlin Wall wasn't very chaotic. It's because there was a West, uh, West uh, Germany to be reabsorbed into. Um, and uh, and similarly, what I'm advocating is is a kind of a, it's actually a very very peaceful uh, kind of revolution. It's uh, I, I don't believe in this uh, you know guillotining the old elite or or whatever or putting them in prison. It's a uh, uh, that's nonsense. And it's like staying within the same frame of um, of political conflicts that the revolution is supposed to end. Um, All right. So I, I do I do very much agree that. Uh... There is not much change that happens when, when we have elections, no matter who wins. And the last time there was an actual change in the power group uh, was when Trump was elected and there was massive amounts of chaos. Yeah, I don't agree there. I don't, think, I don't think there was a change either. Uh, well, I, don't I think, think Trump himself was outside of the everyone else who was still part of the same power group, and yeah, which is Trump why he failed have, at I... everything. 
Yeah, uh, and and uh, and so what that basically tells you is that Trump didn't have power because yeah. uh, he was so far outside that he would have done everything differently, and uh, and of course things didn't change all that much. Even the people literally working in in the government, um, most of them, their lives were like were almost entirely unchanged. Yeah. Right? Um, they were following the same procedures as before because it's the whole thing is this entrenched bureaucracy that is like rigid and sclerotic and cannot be changed uh so or at least not by uh at least not by trump you'd need somebody who's more um uh so is he's more uh insistent and all in so is first. the argument <laughs> that our our current democratic system is really more of a farce uh, and like a circus to keep us yes, yes distracted while the same ruling party keeps ruling for decades upon decades oh yes yes absolutely yes um i would say that the last uh change in power was the uh, fdr administration there was sort of the last regime change um and it's still sort of um it's uh and and you can really trace uh trace the current regime further back than that it's just sort of uh it's i guess i guess i would call that the last change of government uh the last sort of change in in uh dynasty would be you know with the uh um um, the English dissent is settling in America. So if like we that. if uh, we already have that sort of um, single party um, power elite rule, then why would changing to a monarchy as opposed to our system make a difference or make it better? So it's uh, so partly it's that, uh, that that this regime is very old and uh, and things whether they're you know um, whether they're uh, biological beings or whether they're uh, governments, they tend to um, they tend to get sicker with age um and that's basically what has happened um and uh, so part of it is just that that this thing is old um um it's i'm i'm not saying that that uh, that whatever comes next will be uh will last forever and and that even 500 years from now it would it will still be superior to what we have now it will probably also uh, undergo a slow deterioration um and eventually will need to be replaced too and this is of course something that um that the founders of uh, of the founding fathers uh, understood quite well when they uh, uh, when they included the uh, the right to bear arms as part of the Bill of Rights. You know, it's um, that's basically an understanding that that even these processes uh, of, um, of of peaceful regime change that we've encoded into the Constitution that these are uh, that these are probably going to fail eventually, and eventually you will need uh, a revolution. Uh, of course, ideally we should have a revolution that doesn't involve a single shot fired. Um, so, uh, so the right to bear arms may not be particularly necessary in that respect, but uh, but that's basically that's basically the intuition that regimes um, deteriorate over time and eventually need replacement. I think, as far as your other question too about like what would make uh, the new system better, other than just being fresh, might just be like a monarch could actually get shit done because they're not accountable to yes. like the public or whatever, right? Exactly. So, so what we have right now is we have uh, entrenched bureaucracy with a whole bunch of agencies. So, uh, that for the most part, people don't even really know what the agencies are doing. Right? They they know that there's a very very large amount of money being poured into the system, and they know that some of the money ends up in like uh, welfare checks. Some of it ends up in uh, in you know uh, in, in in healthcare, and um, and some of it ends up in the military industrial complex. Right? Um, but um, even in the systems where there are trans where there's transparency, the whole thing is just so com complex and intractable that people don't actually know uh, where this money is going. Uh, the whole thing is this very sort of very deeply entrenched uh, entrenched system, and uh, and it takes up a very very large part of the GDP. I mean, 
historically a uh, you know a tax rate of 20% would be like almost unthinkably oppressive uh, before before the advent of the new deal dynasty uh, <laughs> as i call it I, I don't know exactly how much power you see the monarch having but one person only has so many hours in the day like wouldn't this monarch necessarily have a lot less power than our government does in total right now there are two things we sort of conflate, we, we tend to conflate when we think of, of how large a government is. One is, is basically executive power, and the other is basically the size of the whole thing, right? The size of the bureaucracy, the bureaucratic bloats, as I call it. Um, but when you have a more bloated bureaucracy, actually it means the government has less executive power because it's just much more difficult to, uh, to direct this sluggish, massive thing than it is to direct some, something more concentrated. Um, so there's a trade-off there, actually, between government size and government power. So would the monarch just have to drastically reduce the size of government to make it steerable by yes. one person again? Yes, yes, and and that's also the point of having the government. It's actually so. This is a bit uh, a bit backwards. Actually, the the whole point is um, it's basically a libertarian perspective. So um, it started with the uh, with the two thousand and one book by uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe, uh, "Democracy: The God That Failed," where he basically explains that uh, that uh, actually sort of the real historical libertarianism is just monarchism. Uh, of course, he's an anarcho-capitalist. He's not a monarchist, or at least he doesn't. At least he thinks he's not a monarchist. I think his anarcho-capitalism would actually look a lot like a whole bunch of small monarchists. But uh, <laughs> he's basically showing how uh, how monarchism is analogous to privately owned uh, government. He says, "I think it would be more accurate to say a privately owned nation," um, and uh, and democracy is analogous to a publicly owned government or nation, right? Um, and and so. If you're a libertarian, you're quite annoyed with, with the New Deal regime, with the, this whole thing where you have an absolutely massive tax burden. And if you look at, uh, at tax incidents, um, you'll see actually that, uh, that low income groups often end up effectively paying taxes twice, not quite twice, but almost twice, because of course, um, they, uh, they tend to be, uh, be providing services that people can, uh, can do themselves. Um, and, um, because it's part of what it is to have a low skilled, uh, skilled job, um, and they tend to be lower income groups, so they only buy goods that are necessities and therefore have inelastic demand. So that means that the tax burden falls on them when they're buying goods, and it also falls on them when they're selling their services. So actually, you see this situation where low income groups basically pay taxes twice um, because of how tax incidence works. And, and that gets quite oppressive when you have a tax rate that's, uh, that's as massive as the one we have. And of course, it goes to like uh, pay a whole bunch of... of uh, of bureaucrats that uh, that that um, paraphrasing uh, Yudkowsky here uh, wouldn't uh, have any work if they weren't all stopping each other from getting anything done. <laughs> um, so basically, if you if you look at what um, what would be necessary to disentangle this, right? Um, this uh, very awesome uh, quote from uh, from Thomas Carlyle actually: "What these strange entities in Downing Street." intrinsically are, who made them, why they were made, how they do their function, and what their function, so huge in appearance, may in net result amount to, is probably known to no mortal. The unofficial mind passes by in dark wonder, not pretending to know. The official mind must not blab. The official mind, restricted to its own square foot of territory in the vast labyrinth, is probably itself dark and unable to blab. We see the outcome, the mechanism we do not see. Um, so it's this very very complex machine and it's like if you imagine the process of of tearing down uh, a lot of these uh agencies and and like bringing them down to their original purpose um 
and, and just sort of fixing things, right? Uh, fixing all of these things that libertarians complain about, because this is a basically libertarian movement. Um, the process you're imagining there is not a process that can be done by, um, by procedure. It's not something that can, uh, and it's not something that can be done by a Donald Trump or, or some such. And it's not something that can happen through incremental change where you, you know, where you elect, uh, libertarian presidents and they like, reduce society's government little by little. If you actually imagine what it would involve to uh, to go over each agency and figure out, okay, how do we reform this agency to make it more effective and smaller, right? If you imagine that process, what you're imagining is most likely the work of a single mind wielding supreme executive power. What you're actually imagining is a dictator who has the power to just reform, institute the reforms he wants to institute, right? Um, and that's basically why, uh, why a monarch is... Why a monarch is needed? Because um, where does where does that power is, come from? Because like it doesn't come from God. He still needs people to listen to him and do what he says. And if he doesn't have right. these bureaucracies on his side, why would they listen to him? So that's um, that's sort of the uh, the thing that that gives us a chance uh, of of having a uh, sort of monarchical dictator rather than a fascist one. If you have um, if you have only like very partisan support, it probably won't be enough. If you have, but if you have, uh, 70, 75, 80% of the population, um, then, uh, you know, uh, I mean, you sort of go into, uh, you go into con- Congress and you like, you just go in there and you like, uh, stop whatever you're doing and work out. I have like 80% of the population on my side and, uh, and, uh, None of you will be prosecuted. You haven't done anything wrong. You've just like done your job. Um, we're not, we don't, we don't hate you. Actually, we love you and, and we understand and we understand that you don't even like your jobs, right? I mean, if you look at like how many of them actually enjoy their jobs, it's probably not a lot of them, right? Um, and like, it's like, what are they going to do? Are they going to like barricade themselves in Congress and be like, uh, we will never surrender? But <laughs> it's like, uh, I don't think it's very difficult to, uh, for a, um, for a genuinely popular, um, prospective monarch to, to assume power. Um, I don't think that's going to realistically be a stumbling block. As for like the exact method he would use, uh, well, I think, frankly, he would be in a better position to uh, to decide that than I am. <laughs> okay, so that's why you're saying this would have to happen after a massive collapse of society, because yes. that's the only way you'd get yes. that much I mean, popular support. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this this kind of um, so so the last sort of uh, the last dictator that uh, USA had would, would be uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and if you look at his uh, at, at his speeches. Uh, He's basically he's basically saying that uh, that I am fully prepared, if necessary, to declare a state of emergency and just like declare martial law to uh, to address you know the Great Depression. And uh, it's like okay, um, um, and um, why? So so uh, you're not a yeah. fan of uh, FDR though. Like, why no. would you think that a a monarch that comes into power would be more like someone you would like as opposed to someone like FDR? Because we've already had, had FDR, uh, and uh, and you know people have seen how how that works out. I don't think uh, I don't think the idea of of New Deal has as much popular support as it did back then. Um, so it's really just historical accident that uh, that you know that it would go differently this time. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's there's nothing inherent about the process that that uh, that prevents FDRs. It's just like at the time, you know, um, New Dealism was was quite popular, and now it isn't. Um, so what do you think is going if i don't mind me going off a total tangent here what do you think is going to happen with russia seeing as they have a monarch and he appears to be pretty popular but he's also making what look like really bad decisions that are dragging russia into a a new dark age 
So I, uh, I kind of preferred not to, uh, not to comment too much on, um, on issues that are sort of hot button topics right now, because I, I believe like people are actually noticeably less, uh, people, I would say that people were noticeably less rational about, uh, COVID back when the lockdowns were still going on, uh, than they are now in retrospect, right? Mm. And I believe this is, this is a similar thing. Um, what I will say is that, um, that, uh, I have a perspective that differs considerably from what you will find in, uh, in, in Western media and is more like you would find in, in Indian media. Oh, okay. Um, and, and then, you know, readers who are curious can, can like, find Indian media commentators on, on the whole situation. Um, well, if you are trying to chase down some of that rage is, clicks, you're welcome to elaborate, but no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I prefer not to, uh, I might, I might in the future elaborate on, on my blog, but on my Substack, uh, which I guess I could, uh, um, I, I should plug right now, uh, esotericmusings.substack.com and it will be in the show's description, I hope. <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Okay, great. Um, so, um, so check that out. I will probably eventually, uh, write a post about, uh, about the whole, uh, Russia Ukraine situation. Um, although actually, one thing I will say that might get a little bit of rage clicks is, um, to fathom a complicated plot, look at what happens and ask who benefits. Hmm. So what we have here is a devastating war between Russia and Ukraine. We see it's like absolutely devastating to, to, uh, both Russia and Ukraine. Uh, but, but one country, it's, it's not particularly devastating to, and one country's government in particular, it's not devastating to is, uh, is the American government is actually not particularly devastated by this. Um, it's actually a very convenient distraction from domestic, uh, problems. Um, and, um, I'm not sure if I would go so far as to say that, um, that, uh, that, USA and NATO have, uh, have literally like manipulated, uh, Ukraine and, and Russia to go to war. Um, but I also won't say that they haven't. Um, <laughs> but you're not, not saying that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, it's something I, I, I'm, I, uh, I sort of consider a, uh, a distinct possibility. Um, it sure sounds like the kind of thing we would have done. <laughs> so yeah, I, I can right. see how that sounds plausible. Uh, too. And, um, oh wait, uh, what, what were we going to say, Jace? Um, to Ineash's point, uh, without bringing Russia and Ukraine into it, um, what I'm concerned is about, like, with, with this absolutist system, uh, what is there keeping, like, the inevitable psychopath or idiot or narcissistic, like, megalomaniacal CEO from making bad decisions? Right. So I'm actually, this, this is a great question. Um, and, and it was, Actually, a point I wanted, wanted to touch on. So it's, it's great that you asked this. Um, because as, um, because there's basically, um, this trade-off, uh, people perceive. They, they, they say that, you know, of course, a benevolent, uh, benevolent dictator would be the ideal system, at least. Well, a, a wise and benevolent dictator, just being benevolent, of course, isn't enough if the dictator is unwise. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, but what they'll also say is that they fear it would be unstable. So, so they sort of conceive of a kind of trade-off, um, between stability and, uh, and, and competence. Um, and, um, and I guess if you, uh, if you select for birth, they will also tend to come apart in, in, uh, 
at the tails, right? Which happens when you have, uh, uh, even if you have correlated things. And I think these things actually are correlated, that the competence for government is, uh, is correlated with its stability. Um, and I think this is not a particularly hard case to make. Like, uh, you just sort of look at competent governments and you look at incompetent governments and you ask yourself, which one seems more stable, right? Um, <laughs> and I think it will paint a pretty clear picture. Um, but I think also we have this sort of idea that, uh, the, the status quo is basically eternal, um, and it's not not necessarily something we hold at a rational level, but at a sort of pre-rational or, or instinctual level. We have this sense that this is how it's always been, and this is how it's always going to be. Um, so we sort of imagine the status quo stretching out eternally, but actually the status quo isn't Lindy, right? Uh, so the Lindy f- um, effect is basically... The expected lifespan of something, of something is proportional to its current age. Um, we don't actually know that the current system is more stable than hereditary monarchy. And I don't think it is. Uh, I don't think that, uh, um, I think that the current system is prone, has a distinct failure mode of being prone to producing, uh, fascist, uh, movements. Um, and, uh, and that it could very well turn into a fascist dictatorship. Um, what? You it keep is using, unstable in that sense. Yeah, you keep using stable and unstable. Could you define what you mean by those? So, I mean, um, stable in the in in um, the quite literal sense, where a stable government is government that uh, that remains in in power. It's sort of okay. A governmental structure that remains the same over time, whereas un- an unstable one is one that changes drastically. Um, and so, we see this idea. Okay, we can see why a uh, beneficial, uh, so a benevolent and wise monarch would, would be a great form of government. Um, but people are concerned that it would be unstable, that that you might not have a benevolent and wise monarch after a few generations, right? Um, but a few generations is a long time. A monarch can have a very long reign, right? Um, it's like, if it's uh, if it breaks down after, you know, I guess, I guess I just don't really have the luxury of, of, uh, of being concerned with whether it breaks down 80 years from now, right? It's, um, I'm more concerned with, um, because as I see it, the status quo is already breaking down and we need to sort of, we need to address that. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I don't really see, I don't see, uh, democracy as particularly stable. Um, I see, uh, I see actually, I, see, I actually see democracy as, as quite unstable because it's prone to creating, uh, partisanship uh, and like creating these uh, mass movements that hate each other. Um, and I think this is a very major source of instability, of political instability. When you have competing mo- movements, uh, it's just a lot more unstable than when you don't have these mass movements. And you don't think there would be competing movements like that in a, in a monarchy? I think there would be... I think there would be competing um, interest groups. I don't think you would have mass movements um, because... Um, because, well, first of all, historically, it didn't. Like, historically, you just had, like, uh, um, you know, you had, uh, well, you have had a lot more sort of, um, sort of more fractal structure of government, where, where you'd have more uh, local governments, you'd have, like, a mayor or something, um, or a feudal lord or something, and it would, uh, a sort of intermediate stages, um, between, sort of, uh, between an ordinary, uh, an ordinary resident in, in the nation, uh, and, and the monarch at the top. There would be, like, more stages in between. And, um, and, and so the whole sort of process of government would be, would feel even further removed than it, than it does now, right? Uh, right now it feels removed in the sense that it's quite abstract what actually happens in this complicated New Deal bureaucracy. But it also feels very close in that, um, you know, people participate in elections and, and you're supposed to have an opinion about topics. Whereas if you just sort of, if you just sort of pay, you know, 
uh, pay four or five percent of your income as taxes to the monarch, and you pay like another uh, four or five percent to to like your mayor, um, then uh, then it's like you're, you're going to be like relatively indifferent actually to to the politics at the national level, um, and and you're going to see basically politics as being you know the king's concerns, and you're just going to be like uh, I don't get paid enough to 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 start to worry about like like uh politics is this is like this is a lot of work and i have no particular incentive in uh in in doing this don't the but, common people um, often get drafted into the fights between interest groups though um well actually no um uh or at least not into the uh armies maybe like um maybe some uh um i mean i i gotta admit i'm um um i'm sort of veering a bit from my um from familiar ground when I when I go into two arguments from history because I'm not much of a historian yet. I'm working on it though. Um, but um, in uh, in like I'm thinking specifically, I, I don't know if this was a historic anomaly or if this is common. So maybe this is a bad example. But I was thinking of the War of the Roses period, where everybody in a major city would have roses of one side, one color or the other, to show you know whose side they are on, and there would be duels in the streets between opposing factions yeah i think you i mean i'm not very familiar with this uh with this historical period but my my um my guess would be that uh that this 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 these factions was mainly at this sort of was mainly the nobility and and uh and that this working masses just didn't really care uh because that's usually how these things work um and and like even today when you see um um when when you look at the people who are most engaged in in politics, people who are constantly posting, you know, basically virtue signaling on, on on Facebook and Twitter, it's a uh, it's the people with college degrees and uh, and the people um and and college uh, the sort of college educated class is basically a contemporary nobility. It's um uh, they have uh, their college degrees are basically a title of nobility that entitles them to hold public office and to matter in society. Um and and what that is is just it's a title of nobility. Um, and you will see when uh, when people uh, write the you know college application essays, uh, they'll be like uh, talking about how they want to make a difference, they want to improve the world, they want to uh, whatever. Uh, and and what what that basically translates into is uh, they want to rule, right? They want uh, they want power, <laughs> um, and um, they want power and relevance. And these are like very sort of um, these are noble ambitions. This is like how a uh, how a noble thinks, and you'll see this like throughout history. This is how nobles think throughout history, um, and even now, these are the people who are most fervently engaged in in politics. Uh, of course, the working masses are also engaged in politics uh, now. Uh, I would say that's largely because the working masses are not not doing particularly well. They're rather discontent with the uh, with the very very high tax rates by historical standards, um, and. Uh, and with uh, all the regulations that are, uh, you know, and and with all the, you know, witch hunts, moral crusades, uh, and uh, and this is sort of what's engaging the working class. The working classes wouldn't really care if if uh, if they weren't basically being forced to care. Um, I, hmm, I'm I'm not sure if we're gonna have time to go into this, but this is actually a thing that I wanted to touch on, and you touched on it right now, so I guess we could bring it up. Um, earlier, you had talked about how uh, you like that uh, monarchy is at least a um, honest. Uh, military military uh, force yes. rule, whereas you know all the other ways are uh, dishonest, deceitful, um, and you say the same thing about the caste system that we have. Where I think your argument yes. is that we have an, an informal caste system, which you were just talking about, which is uh, the college educated elite, the aristocrats, um, and, and and the normal working day folk, uh, and that you would 
much prefer for us to have a formalized case system rather than this yes. informal one. I think it's cast. So, so it cast? this is actually. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, it's cast. Okay. Yeah, I think it's cast. Oh, yeah. My so bad. these. Um, so this is actually an area where I'm gonna I'm gonna borrow a little bit of of, of Marxist rhetoric and talk about class consciousness. Um, if you have basically formalized systems where everybody can tell uh, what is going on and who has like uh, who has power and like, who is this sort of privileged class with power and who is. is isn't right right now you have like harvard students complaining about uh about you know marginal being marginalized and it's like hmm. if you're in if, if you're in a harvard university then you're not marginalized uh you might be you know you might be discriminated against but you're not marginalized marginalized means being you know shoved to the margins of society and harvard university is not the margins of society um so um, um it's it's a uh, so if you have a sort of very clear, uh, very sort of honest system, uh, what happens is you will have a kind of very, um, very sort of true class consciousness. This is other term. It's really a very toxic term, but a false consciousness. Uh, and of course, I disagree a lot about what constitutes false consciousness compared to the people who use these terms more frequently. But, um, if you have a very honest system, you will have not a lot of false consciousness. You will have very sort of clear class consciousness you will have if you have a a monarch who uh, who is a monarch because he um inherited the title from his father right and it's just very clear that an ordinary person has no chance uh on earth of, of becoming of becoming king right um if you have that situation it fosters a class consciousness it's like there's a there's a clear sort of class difference between the royalty and the rest of the population and the rest of the population is not going to think of the royalty as just an extension of them right when, when people talk about what the government should do what they will they will use phrases like we should we should uh um what would they say we should uh yeah we should make that we should illegal. reform the healthcare system or we should that, uh yeah. you know we should ref- reform the healthcare system we should uh increase gun rights we should uh reel in gun rights we should like whatever it might be hmm. um and uh and this we is actually it's it's kind of inaccurate because um because these, these processes of governing actually have very little to do with with most of the people who say we should uh <laughs> Yeah, it's like um, and and uh, and in a monarchy, people wouldn't be making this mistake. They would be like, uh, uh, the king should do this, maybe if they're talking about what the king should do. Uh, and they would also probably feel a bit more silly because they'd probably realize that the king isn't like doesn't really care about what what some random person says the king should do, right? Yeah. Or they could um, say, or they should, the nobles should, our local prince should. Right. And so they're not gonna they're not gonna have in a sense the same kind of um, they're not gonna have the same loyalty to to the government that uh, that we do now. We have this sort of sense that the government and the nation are basically synonymous, and they are us. Right? We that, are the nation. We are the government. Isn't that a strength um, of current nations, though? Like that's what makes them able to unite a lot of people in wars and take over other countries. Yeah, I'm um, I'm generally not not very keen on warmongering. Uh, <laughs> but, um, well, I mean, I'm not either, but also if, if you don't um, have a strong nation to defend yourself, then the warmongering right. nations near I you think, will. Exactly. Yeah. I think having a strong nation to defend yourself, like the first and foremost thing is to have a nation that's more competent than the other nations. But even if you cannot draft as large an army, if you can only like get uh, get an army by like paying people the market uh, prices of, of like their work, right? if that's the only way you can build an army, um, that's still going to be fine if your technology, if your uh, military technology is just way better than all the other countries, right? So, so the first and foremost thing you want to do to to be a strong nation is to be a very well functioning nation um, that has a lot of you know that that produces effective military technology that's you know uh, that produces uh, basically lots of aristocrats as and um, 
and is you know generally you know a well-functioning nation. Uh, and uh, if if you have such a nation, you will be a stronger military power than, than nations that aren't, assuming comparable size. Right? Even if your army uh, is, is smaller. Um, yeah, and, but uh, technology isn't that contained. Like you, you need a lot of inputs from around the world to make true. most things. But nowadays. I mean, there's there's also like the strength of your industry and like just this, the you know effectiveness of your economy, like how wealthy your nation is. Um, this is a very very major factor in your nation's military strength. It's just like how wealthy is it. Um, I mean, it, and, it sounds uh, a lot like this is this is something that would probably work well as a government system in a world that where there weren't a lot of other competing nations of equal strength, like either a, a world that's already pretty much united think, or or one where you are unambiguously the biggest nation there is. If you're literally getting invaded, uh, then, okay, a monarch would probably uh, would possibly uh, institute conscription to defend. It seems likely that in such a case, a monarch would be able to amass an army that's comparable in size to uh, a non-monarchical nation. Um, but... Um, but conscripts are pretty useless on the battlefield. You'd, yeah, you'd, but you'd also have. Uh, well, yeah, that's that's also a reason why. Uh, actually, uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe specifically cites that as a reason for why uh, why conscription uh, is basically a democratic phenomenon and only happens sporadically and rarely uh, and in limited scope in monarchies. Basically, you're much less likely to get drafted into war in a monarchical era. Um, but um, it's uh, it's. So I mean, first of all, you you uh, you'd probably form alliances with uh, with nations. I mean, you could you could um, I mean, if you have a very well functioning uh, society, uh, I don't think you will have a hard time forming uh, effective military alliances with other well functioning societies. Um, and I think I think generally speaking, um, how well functioning a society is, how well functioning its government is, uh, is very correlated across different metrics of performance, like different uh, different. Um, let's say, different skills the government has, right? Um, and I think uh, if you have a generally competent government, it's going to be a powerful uh, military as well. It's going to be militaristically powerful. And I'm not sure exactly how that plays out in the case of monarchy, but I don't think that's going to be a pitfall of monarchy. I would be surprised if that was a pitfall, uh, if, if, if that's where it falls down. <laughs> I don't know. It, it seems to me like nationalism is a very powerful military force. And I know that like the most right. popular monarch that uh, keeps being brought up is the uh, the ruler of Singapore, whose name is escaping me right now. Um, uh, Lee Kuan Yew. Yeah, there we go. But Singapore was a small island nation that um, was pretty much ethnically homogenous and uh, didn't have any military uh, threats at the time. So it's not like it, it's not like that would necessarily scale to a larger population and a larger uh, geographic area. Well. I mean, you can you can always just like uh, you can always just like form an army through being very wealthy and 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 you know uh, and and paying you know citizens to be uh, to join the army um, and um, and and that way you know you get higher quality uh, soldiers than if you're just um, if if you're uh, then if you're just uh, doing a sort of haphazard draft where you're drafting a whole bunch of, of untrained soldiers, giving them like a, a couple of weeks of training because you're already at war by the time you're doing the conscription. I, um, no, I mean, and, uh, sure, but I'm not sure I completely agree with the, the premise. A lot of the premise seems to be that like we will have uh, more money. The monarch is uh, motivated by his personal wealth and the wealth of his nation, and uh, we can pay for more soldiers. And I'm not sure 
wealth is such a big well, driving force. Like nationalism seems much like a stronger one. More soldiers, more 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 drones, more weaponry, more uh, more tanks, more uh, more uh, fighter planes, more like all of this stuff. It's yeah. like um, like soldiers are not the only part of this size of the army that is relevant and nationalism uh, might soar if like your neighbor's house explodes and you know the, te- the next town yeah, over yeah, gets yeah. on fire so like yeah like true if, if, you're, being invaded, if you're being invaded if, i think people come together you know yeah if you're in a especially if you're in a very functional monarchy and you just like even if you don't you don't really care about it as politics but you're in a very well-functioning monarchy and you're getting invaded by something that isn't a monarchy and therefore is less functional um, <laughs> so what's, um, what's the advantage of a formalized caste system so the advantage there is it's more honest than a uh, than a um, uh, than a sort of informal caste system, um, and and that produces more consciousness of it. It makes better. It makes it easier to um, to fix it. Right? Like if you have if you formalize it, it's easier to fix it because you you can see what's there. It's it's more visible. Um, but also this is um, this is saying about how how most people don't want freedom. They just want security and safety. Right, um, and uh, and the Formal caste system can actually implement this. It can actually like let let the uh, let the people who want uh, freedom be free, and the people who want safety and security be safe and secure. Right? Um, okay, and, so uh, it's a it's not a born into caste system. It's a thing where you could choose to move between the castes. Well, I would say, um, I mean, it shouldn't be like too uh, too easy to move between the castes because then people would do it situationally just to get the perks of of, of, of like one caste on one day and then the perks of the other caste the other day, and then it becomes like. It's just weird. You might as well just give everybody those perks regardless. But it's um, um, but yes, I would say that people should be able to move, uh, not necessarily easily. Um, yeah, maybe a process that uh, it, takes it may be a number something of years. That, yeah, it may be something that you buy uh, buy membership into the noble caste or something. Okay, um, and you could lose hereditary. it. Or yeah, or you could lose it if you don't uphold the codes of nobility or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and uh, uh, it's, it's so um. Uh, I, I don't know if you've read Ayn Rand. Uh, it's, it's really quite interesting because, like, her Atlas Shrugged is basically a hate polemic. Uh, in addition yes. to other things, it's, it's also a hate polemic. It's a hate polemic against basically, she calls them, uh, second-handers and looters, which are very prejudicial terms. Uh, I call them, uh, communitarians. Um, and communitarians, what you notice about them is they can actually be very nice people and very pleasant to be around. Um, uh, they, they shouldn't have power. It's, it's generally unhealthy to give them too much power. Uh, but if they just like like if they're just sort of thriving in the you know communities in the local communities where they you know uh, they stand together and they like help each other out when they're in trouble, they can actually be very pleasant. They have this almost puppet puppet like way of life. And I don't say that you know sort of with any kind of condescension. I like like I like these people when they're you know when they're thriving. Right. Um, I, I'm, I'm in a. Uh, you, you seem to also have said that, uh, at least if I recall correctly, about the current aristocracy that we had, that they're great people, but they um, shouldn't have power. Right. So, th- so the thing about our current aristocracy is that, that a lot of them are basically communitarians by nature, but they sort of uh, have happened to enter the aristocracy, which is not really the, the, the caste that their personality suits. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and that's basically what I'm, so, so it's, it's basically the same point I'm making there, that, that we have a lot of sort of naturally communitarian people who have become part of the noble caste and, and, have, and are in power. And that's really unhealthy. Um, what do you have examples um, of people like that? Well, it's, uh, uh, well, I want to use, uh, now, now I've, I've been thinking in terms of, of, of Atlas, right? But in terms of real mm-hmm. people, uh, I mean, you would, you would have basically, um, uh, 
much of, of the sort of uh, much of the left, uh, but also much of the sort of uh, if, if you look at sort of the university educated uh, quasi fascist um, alt right, right? Um, both of these are actually cases of um, of of, of uh, collectivist personalities, right? Um, and there are different personalities. I'm not saying that you know uh, that that the uh, far right and the far left are, are just two sides of the same coin or or anything like that. Well, well, actually, maybe uh, because it definitely does seem to be like a lot of jumping from far left to far right and far right to far left. <laughs> but uh, um, but uh, there there um, it's um, but if 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 you just like think of of you know uh, of of of, of uh, very sort of left uh, left leaning. Um, uh, you know, um, when people want, um, easier and, and like freer and more universal access to, to higher institutions of, of education, basically to make them less, uh, less exclusive to the aristocracy, then, then that's basically an example of a non-aristocrat who is, who has happened to find themselves, find themselves just like usually goaded by circumstances actually into pursuing an aristocratic life. Um, and it's, and there's a sort of, Personality mismatch because what you really want to do with sort of communitarians is you want to like handhold them through life to a certain extent, right? There are there's a certain personality type where, um, no matter how much you try to sort of get them to uh, to think for themselves, they're not going to. They're going to find somebody who uh, who can think for them. <laughs> um, and uh, um, what, and uh, it's yeah. What personality traits should like a noble cast member have? Uh, I would say. Uh, Openness, conscientiousness, and uh, disagreeableness. Hmm. Okay. Basically, the communitarians will, will be people who care a lot about the local community. They they care a lot about uh you know they they uh, like to go to church if they sort of are unsure about whether something they did was right or wrong. They don't uh they don't prefer to make up their mind on it for themselves. They prefer to like go to a trusted, wise community major member like the um uh. Uh, the sagely elders, if it's like a, t- a migratory tribe or something, right? And, uh, or, or the, uh, preacher in the church, if, if it's like a church community, um, and, um, and, and ask whether what they did was right or wrong, right? And then, you know, if they, if they did something wrong, then, you know, the, uh, priest or something will tell them, okay, uh, you did wrong. You need to atone by, um, by say, by, by, uh, 10 Hail Marys and like, uh, Whatever, right? or or you need to pay this fine to the church or something, and then they do that atonement, and then it's sort of over, and then they don't have to have this guilty conscience because they've settled it, right? Um, and that's sort of the um, that's sort of the, the kind of of uh, society they, they thrive under, where there are these uh, these institutions that sort of uh, help them through How life. How do you know? Also pick them up if they're um, because I I know um, I know. How do you know people would prefer this? Though? That sounds like you're suggesting. I'm guessing the the, the aristocracy is going to be a smaller. So yeah, a lot group. of a lot of uh, a lot of this is from. Uh, I know a lot of different people. So there was a uh, earlier an earlier episode. I don't re- uh, quite recall whether it was the uh, previous episode or the one with uh, discussing a Robin Hanson uh, post. But uh, one of the points that was discussed was whether uh, Les Rama is is a, a cult um, and. Um, and so there are multiple ways you could answer this and it doesn't really have cult enforcement mechanisms. There's no, there's no like, uh, turning people away from, uh, from outside perspectives, right? So in that sense, it's not a cult. Um, but there's also a, there's this phenomenon, Curtis Yavin calls it social parallax. It's basically how many different, uh, types of people, how many different sort of groups and ways of life do you engage with, right? And, um, 
and you know less journals and uh, and programmers and CS majors uh, like college uh, computer science students those do not count as separate groups for this because they're basically the same type of person um, there's a significant overlap between the sort of person who's a member in these groups right um, but if you um, if like part of the time you're you're like engaged with with you know basically uh, Silicon Valley tech techno uh, tech culture and part of the time you're in in a you know rural Texas and part of the time you're like visiting a, a, a tribe of of uh, of Native Americans and part of the time you're like fishing with some uh, Japanese fishermen right uh, you get a very sort of broad exposure to very different types of people and you get a sense of how they think um, and um, so. So as for like how I know this, it's largely that I've I know a lot of uh, a lot of communitarians. I also know a lot of of, uh, of basically natural aristocrats, and I know a lot of uh, you know. Um, so a lot of it is is like direct observation of of different types of people um, that informs my 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 uh, analysis of of where, when and where they thrive. Um, that seems like pretty anecdotal, though. Yeah, I, I suppose. Um, <laughs> I mean. Uh, <laughs> It's it's a sort of thing you can transmit actually quite well from, uh, through um, through fiction because a lot of people will not not that you're supposed to like take the fiction as evidence but the fiction sort of serves to to point out these little glimpses that you've you've uh, seen in your own life of it but um, it's it's a I I mean to jump onto your point I think that the Harry Potter series uh, the the canon one was very much communitarian. A lot of it was about uh, fitting into groups and helping your friends yes. and having this identity assigned to you by a hat or by your parents <laughs> or by whatever right. it is. And uh, so you know, there's maybe that's wrong why with that. I disliked it so much. <laughs> one of the one of the major, really major differences between uh, the communitarians and the individualists is uh, when the communitarians like um, business is is like falling apart. Uh, you should uh, you should try to help them. You should like. Uh, Help them fix it. Like you, you should find some turnaround specialist to sort of intervene and help them get back on track. Mm-hmm. When the uh, individualists, sort of uh, natural aristocrats, when when they're failing, you should allow them to fail. Um, and that's, that's a very important difference because the um, the aristocrats need to have a uh, a way of life where uh, where their success is dependent on their own competence. Where uh, where if they're uh, where if they're Incompetent, they will fail, and when where if they're competent, they will succeed. They need this very meritocratic uh, existence, or, or otherwise, you will get terribly bored and feel like their life is meaningless. Um, and the communitarians need the sense of security. They need the sense that uh, that if if things uh, go south for them, they will have people who back them up um, and and like help them get back on track. And this is a very deep difference between the communitarians and the uh, uh, and the individualists and the communitarians basically want them to find a community to belong to and a sort of worldview to participate in, uh, to partake of a, for example, a church congregation to join. Um, and, um, with the, uh, with the sort of, uh, natural aristocrats, um, they will get very bored of this way of life very quickly. <laughs> um, so these things that make the, uh, you know, that make the communitarian feel at home are often the same things that will make the sort of natural aristocrat feel bored. Okay. Um, and the things that make the natural aristocrat feel excited are usually many of the same things that will make the communitarian feel, feel you know, frankly terrified and out of his depth, out of out of his uh, depth. Sorry. It sounds like yeah. an aristocrat is basically a lot more risk tolerant then. Yes, and a lot more, um, a lot more sort of uh, typically career oriented. Um, Isn't it kind of dangerous to have a very risk? 
intolerant ruling class, though? Right. So, I mean, it's um, the aristocracy is not uh, not the entire aristocracy is engaged with passive governance. There is also aristocracy engaged with, um, you know, with with creating great arts and creating, uh, you know, creating industrial projects and and so on. Um, And you need to have a certain risk tolerance to just dare to be an entrepreneur. Um, Hmm. A lot of people would just not dare any kind of entrepreneurship. Um, And uh, there really is something uh, fundamentally entrepreneurial about this sort of, um, about the aristocrat way of life. Um, uh, The way you sort of teach an aristocrat to to live is basically, you know, you you throw them into the ocean and tell them to swim. And then with a communitarian, you don't do that. Um, And... uh, um, well, we we are at an hour and a half. What are like the major things that you would want to touch on without us interrupting you for a little while? Yeah, I would say um, just to give like a very sort of quick um, kind of structured idea of, of this perspective I'm getting at. Um, it sort of starts with with the uh, intuition that the, the status quo is uh, is itself uh, because the topic uh, the technical topic we were to discuss is why, uh, why we need monarchy to prevent tyranny. And we've already discussed part of that, why the alternative is, uh, is fascism. And, uh, and of course we all know that fascism is tyrannical. I don't think I need to defend that point. Um, but, um, but I would also say that the status quo is another kind of tyranny. Um, and, um, and I want to make that case briefly. And I would say that if you're a low skilled worker, uh, what, what you see happening is basically, um, USA has this massive trade deficit. And what that amounts to is basically they're outsourcing a whole bunch of their manufacturing. They're outsourcing a whole bunch of their, uh, uh of, of their would be, you know, jobs for the working class. Um, meanwhile, they're importing a whole bunch of working class members from other nations. So you have this situation where we're importing working class members and outsourcing working class jobs, which is, which creates a very unfavorable negotiating position for the working class. Um, and, uh, isn't this in large part due to, I I don't know, maybe we should have a, a episode where we discuss this, but I've heard that this is in large part due to the minimum wage making it unfeasible to have those sorts of jobs here? Yeah, it could be. Um, I uh, I haven't looked into that particular point, but but it's plausible. Uh, okay. But uh, yeah, so... so- what what we have is we have this very uh, this this working class that really is struggling a lot more than than people realize if they don't really um, if they stay basically in cosmopolitan areas and they don't go outside because the cosmopolitan areas is basically where the um, the college educated class lives and it's also where the uh, the underclass lives right the people who are on, on welfare checks and uh, um, and the people who are uh, who are you know street criminals and uh, and um, the people who who stay alive by, you know, depending on, on sugar daddies or something. Right? <laughs> um, so it's, uh, but you don't see a lot of working class people um, in the, uh, in the cosmopolitan areas. Uh, you do see some, but, um, uh, but, but more outside of the cosmopolitan areas and they're not doing well. Um, they're really not doing well. Uh, and the market has a natural mechanism for addressing this shortage of jobs uh, and, um, and and the surplus of labor, which is to uh, it, it incentivizes more entrepreneurship, and then an entrepreneur can provide employment not only for himself but for some employees. Right. Um, however, we have this massive regulatory stranglehold that makes such entrepreneurship very very difficult, especially if you're not basically a technocrat. Right. Um, if you just like if it's very difficult for you uh, to to figure out all this uh, all this regulatory stuff, uh, all these regulations. Um, yeah. 
because maybe you don't have any lawyers in in your family um and um it's it's and, almost know, a having some seen people try to start their own businesses it's almost a requirement that you have someone well versed in in bureaucracy around yeah, to yeah. help out because otherwise and that's just and that's just not the case for like a lot of these working class people. So, so we have this situation where we're importing a lot of, of uh, working class people. We're outsourcing a bunch of working class jobs and we're preventing entrepreneurship. Uh, and it's just a very, very terrible, dreadful combination that's just really just squeezing the life out of, of, uh, of these poor people. Um, and that's, and, and of course, uh, as, as you can't really, you, you can, you can hardly even help noticing that this kind of thing gives rise to populist movements, which are, you know, uh, loud and unpleasant. Um, and, uh, um, you know, this is basically why we have the MAGA movement in the first place. It's, it's because of, uh, it's because, uh, these people are really struggling. Um, or, uh, or at least a lot of them are. Maybe not all of them are. Maybe like some of them are like uh, college-educated right-wingers who are tired of workisms and are, you know, <laughs> whatever. But uh, a lot of them are really struggling working-class people. Um, and, um, and and so you cannot really fix a situation without fixing a whole bunch of this entrenched bureaucracy, right? All of these, uh, these uh, New Deal institutions, they worked for a while, but now they're not working anymore. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, and it's like... Bloated bureaucracy really needs to be cut down to size. The tax burden needs to be reduced. Um, the uh, the regulatory barriers to entrepreneurship needs to be reduced. This, uh, this trade deficit needs to be reduced. Uh, like the, we need to stop outsourcing all the working class jobs. Um, and these are things that you just cannot accomplish without somebody wielding very concentrated executive power. You cannot accomplish this by you know by uh, you know electing a bunch of Trumps in succession. Uh, you cannot accomplish this by, uh, by bureaucratic processes, by having, by instituting a new agency to like reduce the size of the other agencies. Like it's just not going to work. Like the only way you can actually change this is by like, um, by giving, by, by, uh, giving power to somebody who, uh, who, uh, has the desire and knowledge to change it. You can't do it with a handful of people with surgical scalpels you need somebody with a giant hammer. Well, you need uh, somebody with, uh, you need a, uh, I wouldn't say a giant hammer. You need somebody with uh, with a scalpel, uh, but it needs to be like a person with a scalpel instead of like a bureaucratic agency with uh, with a bunch of like cheap scalpels that break in their hands. Toothpicks. <laughs> no, that makes sense. I guess I was trying to think of like a metaphor yeah. to say like really like yeah. dramatic change, but hammer is pretty destructive, and that's not necessarily what we're going for. So right. yeah, no, that makes sense. Right on. So that's sort of that's sort of the short version of why we need uh, basically a sort of. Uh, a dictatorship, but that's also the weak case. It doesn't explain why we need a hereditary monarchy. But you can like follow my Substack to uh, <laughs> to uh, find out more about that. If anyone wants to so, make yeah, me king, I'm, I'll be okay with it. But uh, problem is, I, I'm not much in favor of philosopher kings. And if you're on this podcast, you're probably a philosopher. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I promise to be as as uh, uh, ruthless and bloodthirsty as necessary. No, no, that's 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 precisely what happens when you have philosopher kings, and that's precisely what happens. <laughs> so, uh, so I would say that right now, what we have is basically we have basically an. Uh, so I'm I'm in favor of the sort of king part of philosopher king, but problem is right now we have basically an oligarchy of philosopher kings, and it's just not working out terribly well, uh, and it's actually creating quite a terrible war machine. Right? It's like you know people think um, if you had somebody with with executive power, it would be terrible because you know George Bush and the uh, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and the U.S. military not in a nice combination, right? Um, but um, it's like the uh, you know the Iraq War. Um, 
is that just like is that just the result of of George Bush, or can or can we think of other ways in which the you know the U.S. war machine has you know has messed up, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> you know, is this just a you know is this a, a phenomenon of giving uh, George Bush too much power, or is this a f phenomenon of the American war machine, right? Um, I I don't want to drag this out too long, but you gave us the pitch for uh, why we need a a monarchic dictatorship. I guess that that the common working class is really being destroyed and uh and that can't last very much longer uh can you give us a very quick summary of why hereditary monarchy is the better solution so okay it's uh it's basically if you have a uh if you have a sort of if you have very short terms you have basically an incentive to uh, to create as much short term prosperity as possible often at the cost of like your nation's productive capital right um you may create a bunch of uh, of of projects that stimulate a bunch of uh you know uh, a bunch of employment uh, that goes towards essentially useless ends and hurts your nature your your nation's future prosperity or you like take out a whole bunch of federal debts right endless deficit spending and uh, like all of these things are things you do if you're thinking very short term and you need to like win your re-election they're not things you want to do if you uh, if you have a 40-year reign and then you like pass it on to your son right um so there are many ways in which we can see the government being short-sighted so if you just sort of think of all the ways in which the government is behaving uh, in a very short-sighted fashion, I'm saying that that basically happens because uh, you don't have somebody who's a long-term beneficiary of government in charge of making decisions. So basically, um, a monarch um, should basically tax... Uh, Take, basically take the tax money into his own pocket and then like fund uh fund the processes of government out of his own pocket um and so that makes him basically the uh the beneficiary uh of uh, of good government um and uh um because if his nation thrives in the long term he gets more you know tax money um and uh and if he can and if he deficit spends he spends himself into debts that he himself is personally accountable for um what if and, his... and you just don't get that with yeah. What if his motivation isn't, you know, personal wealth? It's something like, I really hate these sorts of people, or I really want to have sex with as many horses as possible, or something. Well, I think in such a case, he could uh, he could do better than uh, being a monarch. Um, <laughs> but um, um, in but but even then, there's still an incentive for him to have a very stable regime because he doesn't want to be overthrown. If like if for some reason a monarch. Being a monarch is actually the optimal position for him to be able to do these things. Right? Uh, if for some reason that's the case, then he wants to maintain the position by that same token. Right? Um, and and so, like, he really has a very strong incentive to just make his, his government work long term. But if it's not the case that the monarch is the optimal position to pursue his interests, then he's going to make a poor monarch. Uh, yes, I mean, uh, and hopefully that uh, at that point you will uh, you will. Uh, um, you'll have some like clever accelerationists or something that can uh, usher in the new regime change. Um, <laughs> because I mean, I don't really believe that any um, that any form of government is going to last forever. Uh, as you know, uh, so, so Harry Potter calls uh, Merlin an idiot for like having made this uh, system that is sure to go astray eventually. But he doesn't really seem to consider the problem of how do you make a system that is sure never to go astray. It's like it's not actually clear that Merlin could have done better than uh, than than what he did, hmm. right? Um, and um, and honestly, I'm like, if if this 
if this uh, regime remains like functional for like, well, actually just for like 50 years, I will be pretty happy with it because I don't think our current thing is going to remain functional for 50 years. Like just imagine, right? <laughs> I mean, just imagine what this thing was today. It, it, it's incredible, right? I mean, we had this, uh, you know, um, you know, it seems like we're going from one, you know, moral panic into the next and from one major crisis to the next, right? It's like, um, it's incredible. And, and just imagine like 50 more years of this. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. but if, if you can have a couple of functional successions, and I don't think that's too impossible, right? If you can have a couple of functional successions and you might have like 150, 200 years of, you know, of, uh, of good governance. Uh, and I'm like, I'll take that even if like in 300 years it like deteriorates. I'm not sure, like, I'm not sure it's, it's my, my, um, my job to, uh, you know, to come up with a way in which, uh, in which we can ensure that, uh, that not only do we have a fantastic government now, but it will also still be fantastic in 200 years. And I think these things are related actually. Like the, the better our government is now, the more likely it is to be good in 200 years as well. Um, because, uh, this is intuition from Carlyle actually. This is something I should have mentioned earlier because it's actually very important. It's, uh, um, the, uh, ignoble, in the high place, sorry, the, wait, reverse that. The noble in the high places, the ignoble in the low places. Uh, if you, if you accomplish that, then everything is accomplished. Because if there's a problem that you cannot solve by taking the best people and giving them the most influence, right? If there's a problem that cannot be solved by doing that, then it's a problem that's just not going to be solved, right? Um, it's like, there's this, um, there's this intuition where in, where, um, where the goal basically is you want the best people to have the most influence. And that's sort of your, your success condition, right? All the rest is sort of secondary to that. Sure. Um, and, and, uh, and you want that to also remain the case over time. But I think that's largely a result of, of having this initial condition. <laughs> um, and you think a monarchy would make that more often the case than a Well, democracy. I think it depends on having a good monarch. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm starting with, I'm having a good monarch in the beginning. Right. You want to start out with a, as, as good a monarch as possible. Um, right. And if you start out with a terrible monarch, well, then it's going to be a terrible monarchy. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's not, that's not a good thing. That's not what I'm, yeah. So, so basically I'm, um, I'm advocating, uh, monarchy, uh, as long as, as, as long as you have a good monarch. It seems like you don't it hinges, have a good monarch, I don't support it. The, the system hinges <laughs> yeah. a lot on having a good monarch, but doesn't yeah, yeah, the yeah. Dem democratic system kind of work okay, even if it has, you know, not great people. I don't think uh, I don't think our current system is working well. I think we're like we're almost on the brink of a uh, World War Three, um, and I don't think these things tend to happen in uh, in absolute monarchies. Um, Was World um, War One the result of many absolute monarchies clashing? Uh, constitutional monarchies and the monarchs themselves. You'll see in this in Pat Buchanan's book actually, but you'll also see it in uh, if you don't like Pat Buchanan because he's too biased. You can like also see it in Nicholson Baker's Human Smoke. Um, that um, the monarchs were actually trying to stop this from happening, uh, hmm. and the uh, and and you know the parliaments and the peoples were just like being crazy and bellicose. Huh. <laughs> but uh, um, um, this is of course revisionist history. This isn't uh, this isn't sort of the mainstream history, although it's becoming increasingly mainstream in Europe from what I'm told. Um, but uh, yeah, you can read uh, you can read their breakdown of this situation. Well, we. We are getting near the end of this. Uh, real quick, yes. all of us, uh, do you guys have questions that, uh, a question or two questions each that you wanted to hit uh, about this? I feel like you're pretty comprehensive. I, I was thought provoking. Yeah, I think I already asked my main questions. I guess I have 
one more question, which I must say is not my question. It was uh, brought up in the Discord uh, a while ago, and I don't think there was ever a full answer to it. And it it strikes me as a problem, maybe, maybe not a problem for society, but a problem for me personally. And so I was wondering how you would uh, how you would think a monarchy would address this. Um, the essence of the question boils down to. I guess it would be, how do we protect the freedoms we really want, which a monarch wouldn't uh, find valuable. But the case given was that um, you, you keep saying that a monarch would want a society that is as strong and stable as possible in order to you know preserve their own monarchy. And part of yes. a strong, stable society is continued population growth, which is a big problem in the uh, the advanced West right now. Basically, all the countries have right. negative population growth. And therefore... Like I, everyone that is on in this conversation right now uh, doesn't have kids. A lot of us aren't going to have kids. I've intentionally sterilized myself. I know you're gay. Like we would both be people that the monarch would consider. I'm assuming uh, parasites that need to be somehow forced to to produce kids or to care for other people's kids or something. Well, so actually, one of the things I'm uh, I'm discontent with about Denmark at the moment is that uh, is that uh, reproductive rights for gay people are absolutely atrocious. And I think that's actually something that would improve in a monarchy. Um, and I don't think a monarchy would have a uh, would, I don't think a monarch would have an incentive to uh, to like force gay people to live in straight relationships to raise children because that's a recipe for a dysfunctional household. They might have done that in a time when when people had more religiously motivated homophobia, but I don't think that would be the case now. Uh, what about like people like me who have gotten sterilized or trans people yeah, who think, can't I, have I think kids? Basically, I think forcing people to have kids is, is a bad way to go about it. They definitely would want people to, uh, to be productive wherever possible. But I think it's also generally understood that you cannot like, um, I don't think, I don't think like trying to like, I don't think tyrannizing your population to like, uh, only care about the people who, who produce like, uh, produce children. Um, I don't think that would go over very well with the population. And I don't think that's actually a recipe for, uh, for stability. I think. I think a monarch would try sort of softer ways to encourage having children, like maybe uh, lowered, uh, like a slight difference in tax rates depending on whether you have children or not. Right? Yeah, monetary incentives don't seem to be working. Uh... Clones. Yeah. Clones. There we go. <laughs> I would raise yeah, a clone like maybe people, maybe, maybe people who have children only pay 5% taxes and people who don't have children pay like a 10% taxes or something right Oof. and it's it's uh, <laughs> I mean it's like it doesn't um, I, I don't think you need to um, um but I think also just in general, when you have a more functional society, you will have a higher, uh, uh, you will have, well, well, of course, it depends on what you consider functional. But if you have a, a society that's more in the direction of what I consider a functional society, then I think you will have a higher birth rate. I think right now we have basically, um, you know, um, um, pair bonding has been significantly deranged in uh, in our society over the years right there's there's like um there's basically a little bit of incompatibility between this natural drives of, of, of women and, and men uh, on, on average right so so men on, on average tend to be more uh, promiscuous than women and women on average tend to to sort of um, marry uh, i believe jordan peterson calls it up and across in in hierarchies or something right um and um, and this difference uh, leads to some dysfunction if you don't have basically cultural uh, mechanisms to encourage monogamy. Um, and if you have those cultural me uh, mechanisms, especially actually at the level of of the uh, of of the communitarians, um, 
Um, so, so the problem, of course, is aristocrats are sort of high-value people, and you ideally want aristocrats to have kids, but aristocrats are also least likely to have kids. <laughs> but, uh, so, so and, are you both a monarch? Are you both a monarchist and a monogamist? Uh, yeah, I generally am in favor of uh, of uh, culturally encouraged monogamy. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I, I, I don't I, believe in like tyrannizing the population to enforce it. I don't believe in anything like that. Yeah, no, I got you. Um, okay. I, I just, I hadn't expected that particular confluence of views, but uh, it, it looks like right. they have some, some overlap. I think quite a bit, actually. Yeah. They, yeah. Okay. Well, is there um, anything you would like to say at the end here to, to wrap things up, things that you want to address, you know, end it however no, you see fit? Uh, this, I think we've... Uh... Gotten around a lot of points already. We're still doing the uh, the uh, list round first, right? Or... Yes. Uh, before we do that, um, real quick, since we're ending the topic here, if people want to learn more about hereditary monarchy and why you think it's a good idea and why you think the current um, social order is collapsing, where would they go to read about that? Well, they would. Well, first of all, there's the um, this Substack uh, that I'm starting out, uh, Esoteric uh, Musings.substack.com, which will uh, have its first post. Um, the first press will be published by the time this episode is released. Um, and um, uh, in addition to that, uh, I would recommend checking out Curtis Yavin's graymirror.substack.com and, uh, and perhaps uh, Hans-Hermann Hoppe's Democracy, the God that Failed. Huh. Okay. Alrighty. Um, that, that was quite a bit. Should we jump into the less wrong posts to finish up the episode? Let's do it. Yeah. I don't think there's that much to cover, so it should be swift. Okay. But that might just be me, so... Yeah, I, I don't know. I had a good time reading them, but who knows how much there will be to say. Oh, I didn't dislike reading them. I just feel like... Well, let's start with uh, fake, fake utility functions. Okay. Which is a historical artifact describing why this post... Why the next post took so long to write. Basically that, I, yeah. I, I think that there's... It was it was a fun read. It was probably even way more fun if you're reading these live when they came out. But I think there's a reason it didn't make it into AI to zombies. Mm-hmm. Just because it's... It's more of a meta-commentary. Exactly. Yeah. I personally really liked it um, because it started out, you know, with him saying, uh, I want to address this thing where people have found the one great moral principle and uh, and once they have found it, everything will turn out fine. And then he says, you know, it occurred to me that if I wanted to explain this, I need to explain this. And then that turned into multiple posts. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually quite, it's, it's quite funny because I had a, an experience very similar to what he's describing in this, uh, in his post. Um, I, uh, I have a friend who assured um, three worlds collide to. And he just didn't really get the idea. He didn't. Sort of, he sort of saw. Um, um, and this friend was was at the time still sort of. He was leading alt right. I've, I've actually de-radicalized him. Or I mean, I'm not even sure. Maybe monarchism is more radical than alt right. But uh, yeah. I've, I've sort of gotten, gotten him away from uh, alt right. Um, hey, congratulations! And, uh, oh, uh, thanks. Uh, it was actually how I got into monarchism. I was sort of trying to use that as a gateway drug for like less Russian perspectives, but then I ended up being convinced as well, which I should have seen coming, but I totally didn't see that coming. I didn't even see this possibility. But uh, <laughs> it seems uh, it seems odd in retrospect. But uh, um, yeah, um, so it was really just intended. It was very accidental. I just sort of intended to use it as a gateway drug for a friend. Uh, <laughs> Like I would direct him to the uh, anti-reactionary FAQ and say it's a codex later, but uh, yeah. Um, anyway, so um, yeah, so when he read um, Three Worlds Collide, he was like, "Well, but the uh, the super heavies just seem like a superior uh, 
superior intelligence, and he would like this is the type of person who um, who like who who like Nick Land would have uh, sacrificed everything to Gnon as uh, as Scott Alexander uh, paraphrasing Scott Alexander, right? um, and um, he sort of thought you, you know he would have thought that uh, that a super intelligent AI being misaligned and taking over the universe would be an improvement over humanity because the super intelligent is a superior species or something, oh, and there was you know. A holdover from his alt right days, right? And I was trying to explain what was wrong with this view, why we should prefer this, you know, uh, this, what in his, uh, in his view was an objectively inferior species, why we should prefer humanity to a, a misaligned super, a super intelligence, right? But I actually found it very difficult for the same reason that, the same reasons Eliza Jukowski is describing in fake, fake utility functions, because I realized, well, actually to explain this, I have to basically explain why, um, it's kind of I a differential uh, distance, you know, about yeah, yeah, about utility functions, about like about uh, how he's basically reifying, you know, evolutionary fitness or something to uh, to being some sort of you know ultimate value, and yeah, it, it was very uh, and I sort of realized I was trying to explain it to him, and I was realizing I just cannot explain this over a conversation. I need to like get him to read basically the whole sequence <laughs> to get it. <laughs> Yeah. So that was very. It was very relatable for me to read this uh, fake, fake utility functions. Yeah, I loved. I loved that it, the demonstration of like how much longer things take once you actually sit down to do them, and the fact that like he was not originally had any idea to write an alien god, which is one of my favorite uh, less wrong posts, and is insanely influential uh, throughout the whole community. And it, I mean, it like kind of shows that you don't know exactly what kind of awesome stuff you're going to end up doing unless you like sit down and try to do something even if you think it's much simpler and you don't have awesome goals like you might accidentally do awesome stuff along the way which is one of the reasons i always right. encourage people to always try to do stuff yes yes absolutely people should do stuff um and <laughs> this is actually one of this this idea that people should do stuff it may sound odd to say this but that's actually very very integral to my worldview and it's one of the things i really struggle pe- to convince people uh that they should but <laughs> you think that's more of a, so would you say that's an aristocratic thing and communitarians don't strike out as much to do stuff on no, their own no uh communitarians also should do stuff the difference is a communitarian should strive for basically being competent and and being uh you know valuable to the community what you'll see mm. with but, but communitarians naturally do this. You don't need to encourage communitarians that much. Uh, at least not if they live in a community. If they haven't found a community, that's when, you know, that's when they won't do it. But what, what you'll notice is if a communitarian becomes like disabled and unable to do, uh, to do, uh, his job, right? He'll, he'll try to, uh, to, to help out in little ways to like talk to people. If you need somebody to talk to, he'll try to like comfort people to entertain, you know, old ladies with conversations to, you know, mm-hmm. uh, find little ways to, uh, to, you know, still be a, you know, uh, a contributing part of, of the community. Um, and he's just like, um, and it won't even be necessarily out of a sense of, of duty or responsibility. It, it will just be like from his, from his nature. He just cannot like, cannot stop, you know, wanting to, wanting to do something for the community. Right. Um, and that's, that's really one of the uh, virtues, this kind of altruism, this communitarian altruism that, that Atlas Shrugged is a hatefully make against. Um, it's, uh, it really works quite well in these communitarian communities. Um, right. And uh, I do. Yeah, I, uh, but, but, okay. Oh, so, yeah, so, so, so communitarians should strive for basically basic competence, but aristocrats should strive for excellence. Like they should, they should not just try to do stuff, uh, or, or even just to try, try to do stuff well. They should try to do it very well, uh-huh. um, because that's right how they develop these aristocratic virtues. Okay. Um, 
and that's where I have a lot of trouble convincing people um, <laughs> that they should, you know, uh, hold themselves to higher standards than they currently do, <laughs> but, uh, or at least aim higher than they do. Not necessarily hold themselves to high standards, but but aim higher and like keep keep at it until they. So, I mean, yeah, I'm not, I don't think that's a bad idea necessarily, but I think for most people just getting started on doing something, even something very simple can often snowball into much larger, awesomer things. And so I just, doing anything at all, I think is great. You don't necessarily have to aim high. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But also doing anything, like I I assume like what you mean by doing anything isn't just, you know, um, you know, watching Netflix all day. Right. Yeah. No. Like, you it's know, like, going yeah, it's like actually something. taking on projects. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm, I'm like, I'm all in favor of like, if they're not, if they're not currently doing stuff, like just getting them to do stuff is, is a massive improvement. Um, and uh, yeah. Um, and that's also something that's, you know, is part of, you know, uh, part of my world, part of like trying to get people to, uh, to, to like have, uh, even if it's not like grand ambitions, but just to have some sort of ambition, something they're trying to do. Yes. Um, but we should move forward. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did just want to say I loved I really loved reading this summary of like how he ended up in this point and it was really really cool to behold and I wish that he had done it a lot more for a lot more sequences because seeing everything like being pulled oh, yes. in from all the different things he's wrote and all stuck into one post it was it was like, like oh shit can kind of see that actually in a lot of posts where a lot of less wrong posts contain links to other less wrong posts it's like kind of the I don't know I, I was gonna say kind of the failure of the format but like also a feature, but also a <laughs> like, feature. It's like the sp- well, like the spaghetti crawl just through all the links. No, that was like I would actually almost like l- like to look at this as a mind map or something, but because we can't, you know, we have web pages to look at, and these are words, so it has to kind of mimic a book. But mm-hmm. it's yeah, I don't know. <laughs> all right, well, that takes us to fake utility functions, which is the actual post that he was working to all yes. this time, which has the same like first two paragraphs. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> Uh, okay i guess all right it basically starts that um a utility function doesn't have to be simple it uh he notes again that a human brain implements a thousand shards of desire and explaining that uh without a very long introduction like he has written over these months uh is hard and someone's just going to hear humans are trying to maximize fitness which is the exact opposite of what evolutionary psychology actually says which i wanted to briefly just comment on because i do hear that a lot uh, from people that like evolution you know has made us to maximize fitness which uh i i guess is um an incredibly wrong misreading of evo psych it's, it's right. an incredibly easy mistake mistake make. yeah it's, it's an incredibly easy wrong answer to come across if you don't understand what you're talking about yeah. which in fairness it's not taught well so and and people also sometimes uh people sometimes make it an odd thing and they're like uh evolution therefore humans ought to maximize f- fitness right, um, right and you see that a lot in like all right uh hmm. places uh areas of common era replacing god with evolution but acting like yeah you know, <laughs> it's still you know you have to obey it hmm. or it's some kind of authority figure <laughs> but yeah this is this is the post about the utility function problem um, he points out that if you leave out even one of these thousand shards of values from a superintelligence, and even if you've successfully included all the other ones, you could end up with a hyper-extensional catastrophe worse than death. For example, if there's a superintelligence that wants everything for us that we want for ourselves, except human values related to controlling your own life and achieving your own goals, that's one of the oldest dystopias in the book. And he names hmm, an yes. actual dystopia book <laughs> from the 50s. Yes. 
Yeah, I, I might just sort of gesture vaguely at uh, at democracy and the New Deal uh, regime mm. <laughs> as, uh, as as being like very controlling in many ways. Um, but I mean, it could get it could get a lot worse, of course, and it would get a lot worse with such an AI. But, uh, you yeah. sounded like you had a comment, Chase. Huh? No. About that thought. <laughs> okay. Uh, so he says, okay, so if you have. Um, one amazing simple utility function that these people are, are saying, you know, is the way to solve friendly AI. Like, how do they deal with this objection that uh, a, a simple utility function can't incorporate all these uh, different shards of desires? And then he kind of uh, has a meltdown and says, <laughs> why would anyone said, possibly... It's that they're not a... They're not like they're not um, used to thinking in terms of utility functions. When most people uh, try to talk about good and evil, what they are referring to really is human benevolence and human malevolence, and these are not necessarily as, as like difficult phenomena to grasp as like um, like like uh, explaining the phenomena. Um, like it's 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 actually quite plausible that human malevolence could have like a single unified cause without that therefore meaning that um, that. Um, that we can use that, uh, use our understanding of human malevolence to uh, to solve AI alignment. Yeah, um, I, I, I mean, and I think that's basically what people are what people are trying to to think. They're just trying to uh, they sort of misunderstand the problem of AI alignment as how do we keep the AI from being malevolent? Yeah, um, and and that's where they come up with one great moral principle because it's it um, don't be evil. It, uh, it, yeah, it may be the case. Yeah, yeah, it it, it may be the case that, that human evil is caused by like one or a couple of things, right? Um, like uh, Freud would say, Destrudo or some. Well, he would say Athanasius or no, 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 that was after Freud. He would say like Death Drive, um, and I think that's a little bit wrong. Um, um, but uh, yeah, um, I yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that's you know Eliezer's whole point is that you can't just have one small simple thing, and when when he saw the people in his community being like, oh, okay, cool, we've got this uh, utility function, that's what we have to solve, he says, why would they... They're not searching for objections to their theory. They don't know any of the stuff. They aren't thinking about burdens of proof. They don't know the problem is difficult. Right. They heard the word super goal and went off in a happy death spiral spiral around complexity right. or whatever. And reading further into this post, it seems like he, he kind of coined this term super goal, which was um, misinterpreted, and also that... Uh, the his community really fixated on uh, the the thing that would solve this is a desire for more complexity. Complexity is good. Complexity is interesting. An AI that wants more complexity is going to create a world that we like. And like this post to me sounded like it was born of him having a panic over the community latching onto something and falling into what he sees as a failure mode that could wipe out uh, human existence or make it, you know, an extreme uh, dystopia forever. And I think one of the the interesting things to me is that like, I don't think this is a concern like anymore. The, the AI safety field isn't hung up on, you know, how do we make an AI like complexity? This is how, what's going to answer this. And yet yeah. his, uh, his freaking out over this solution being latched onto was a major driving factor in the founding of the AI safety field, uh, which is kind of fascinating. Like at the time, his community was almost the only people that were even thinking about this. So it was kind of a big deal. And now it's a much larger distributed thing. But like looking back at this post, we kind of got to see how a small spark of misunderstanding 
eventually blew up into a thing that is trying to fix AI alignment and is a massive deal in the world. And I think like this might be the only time in my life I'll get to directly witness this happening in real time, which I mean, I obviously not now 15 years ago, I witnessed it, but it was like looking in this with the, the, the goggles of looking at history. Like I didn't know this was what was going to result that we were going to have the movement we have nowadays and all these genius programmers working on it. It's, it's really amazing to look back on. Yes. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, in the community when this post was made. I was, uh, uh, I was like, uh, eight or nine years old when it was, uh, <laughs> when it came out. Nine years old when it came out. Um, so I only read, read it like five years later. I think I read it about age 14. Um, but, um, yeah. So one thing I would say is, it, I think um, it's it's not even necessarily that people's. Uh, I mean, sometimes people are just like wrong in their ha- happy death spiral. But sometimes it's sometimes they've actually found something close to a real principle uh, to explain basically the phenomenon of human malevolence. But they're just answering a different question. They're sort of trying to address the nature of evil, which is a very sort of very limited uh, subset of of axiology, right? Mm. So so um, I like to. Um, I'd like to say that, that AI alignment is basically a very pure, um, short form of a more general class of problem that I call axiological alignment, which is, which also includes things like, okay, how do you regulate? How should the market be regulated? Right. You have basically the market is a very, very powerful opt- optimization mechanism, but it doesn't quite optimize for, for like coherent extrapolated volition of humanity. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so there's a sort of misalignment between this very powerful optimization uh, th- thing and our actual values. And I call that an axiological alignment problem. And, and AI alignment is just a very, very pure version of that because what you're trying to align is basically a god. Nice. Um, and, um, and, and so... Um, what, what people are coming up with when they're coming, like, when they're coming up with one, one sort of... Um, complete explanation of, of evil. Uh, what they're really dealing with there is a very, it's a much more limited problem within uh, axiology. It's like there's this one kind of pattern of behavior that we see in in, uh, in human beings and like, what is this about, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's basically what they're answering. And I think sometimes their answers are basically correct. I think Carlyle was pretty close, right? Uh, Thomas Carlyle, whom I've uh, quoted earlier. Um, so his answer is basically that, that um, when people are sort of, uh, that, that, that um, evil has a lot to do with sort of willful, uh, willful blindness and uh, and uh, willful um, refusal to to draw distinctions. Um, right? There's this sort of concept of. of um, I, I I hate to interrupt you, but we're we're getting right. a little bit off topic, and we're trying oh, yeah, to get yeah, more yeah. stay more on topic nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, but but what I'm I'm getting at is I think. I think there's actually a sort of mutual misunderstanding here. I think, uh, I mean, clearly the, um, the people who are giving this, uh, one, one great utility function or something, uh, one great moral principle of which all other values are a mere derivative consequence. I think they're clearly misunderstanding, uh, what, what Bukowski is trying to do with like AI alignment research. But I think he may also be, um, be misunderstanding, um, what the answers mean. Um, I think they may sometimes like, um, I mean, I think they're decent answers if you're a human, but this yes, community yes, was exactly. trying this... to make a superhuman thing, and a decent answer for a human is not going to cut it. Right. Yeah, right. It, it's interesting. Um, 
I can think of like, you know, a good plausible bad answer might be like love, right? Mm-hmm. As like the one governing uh, utility to, to yeah, put into something or somebody. A, I think you can go very, very wrong with that. Because, right. Uh, that's the thing. Like, is um, you, you can go like... Because that, that's, well, even, even with humans, uh, because then you get basically... Uh, uh, I mean, that's basically the hippie answer, and I'm I'm quite quite yeah. critical of of of, of uh, hippiedom. Uh, I've seen, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I have a close friend who was basically raised in a very 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 hippie household, like like maximum hippie, and uh, it has um, it, it he's can... very repressed now because like it's related to the sort of toxic positivity yeah. often. Um, it it can derange you, but Stephen, you were saying? Oh, I was going to say, yeah, I was I was going to use human examples because I don't have any superhuman ones. But like, you know, some people might be inclined to like wirehead their kids out of love or to shelter them from every possible yeah. danger out of love, and all of them will just make the kid weaker, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it, it's it it just it's a or quick just... example to show like the plurality of values that you need to have to like be and help raise a, a successful human. Yeah. yeah. Did Jace? Did you have uh, things to pull out in this post? I got like another thing I want to pull, but I've been talking a lot. I mean, Cornelius have been talking a bunch, and I wanted to make sure the mic gets passed around a bit. Um, I mean, not really. Aside from just getting along with what the post says, so you can go ahead, Ineash. Oh, okay. Uh, Stephen, did you have another thing you wanted to touch on? No, I think that was the main thought I had on the drive over. So, one of the things that I I wanted to touch on that's mentioned in this post is that uh. The, the people arguing for their great idea would be like, see, this great idea um, is justified because it'll promote these things we like, like love. And uh, Eliezer, Eliezer points out, if you're trying to persuade others or yourself of your theory that the one great idea is bananas, then you would sell a lot more bananas by arguing about how bananas lead to better sex. Uh, when really you should be claiming that you should only want sex when it leads to bananas, if the great yeah. idea is bananas. And he says, unless you're so far gone into the happy death spiral that you really do start saying sex is only good when it leads to bananas, then you're in trouble, but you won't convince anyone else. And but I, think I, still- I, wanted, well, I wanted to pull this out real quick because I think this is very interesting in that a lot of people, uh, some people, I don't know if it's a lot or not, have latched on to happiness as their thing and have turned it or into like pleasure. And yeah. or, or pleasure. Yeah. And they've, they've like yeah. a- accepted that. As as I mean, we just had a, a wireheading episode not too long ago, and then a special wireheading follow up for patrons. But like, there are a bunch of people who really do believe that X is only good when it leads to happiness or pleasure, and like they've convinced themselves and others of it. And I'm trying to figure out like why there's this happiness hack that makes it like really easy to hack humans with thinking that and thinking that like, oh yeah, we should wire ourselves because happiness and or pleasure is the only thing that matters. What they're doing is they're basically doing a kind of uh, foundationalism, right? Which is uh, when you try to create an, uh, a science in the Aristotelian sense by having a um, having a central uh, self-evident axiom and then trying to derive everything else from it. I think there's actually a um, a certain value to foundationalism, but I'm also somewhat of a postmodernist, uh, which is um, uh, which is odd probably uh, to a lot of people because I'm also a New reactionary, um, but uh, I sort of claim we are all postmodernists now. Um, <laughs> if you not, if you believe you're not, if you believe you're not a postmodernist, it's because you don't know what postmodernism is. Uh, I or, must or not know what very, postmodernism very is then. But, uh, <laughs> um, um, I mean, so of course, there's like a strong postmodernism and there's a weak postmodernism. I believe we are all like weak postmodernists. Okay. We're not all strong postmodernists. Um, but uh, but you know, this uh, foundationalism. I, I basically have this sort of postmodern take on foundationalism where 
this is a good exercise for like trying to understand uh, if trying to understand ethics better like trying to create this very foundationalist system where you have like one one axiom and you try to sort of see what happens when you try to derive an entire ethical system from this axiom i think you can actually learn a lot from that this is basically how um sure if how you have Mises this did like his economics yeah. i think you can learn a lot about ethics from studying economics because it basically i think uh ethics and instrumental re uh, rationality are going to be like very uh epistemologically very related. I do think it's interesting, like, by having, taking, you know, happiness or pleasure as your foundational thing, exploring that and realizing that it leads to wireheading, but, like, why do people want to have a single one foundational thing so badly? I think people really like uh, there being a simple, uh, straightforward answer to something. Like... Mm. No, it, it also makes it seem very rigorous, right? It's this idea that you can derive a complex system from a, from a few basic premises, because then you can basically do... Um, Back to complexity. Pure deduction. I yeah, I. It's like they want to do this pure, rigorous, logical deduction from like a few basic uh, premises that they can establish with reasonable certainty. In cases we, where that but these are can like, be done, if a, a lot of these people are very intelligent people that I think should know better and do know better in most other cases. There's just this one thing in particular that ensnares them. Like, right, but I mean, it's it's a. What it is, is it's basically a look for a, for rigor in a very nebulous field. Uh, and it's because they are sort of bothered by the nebulosity and they want more rigor. Hmm. And, and in fields where you can do this, this really is sort of the ideal of rigor to have some, uh, premises that you're very, very certain of. And then you derive everything by deduction from those premises. Like it just doesn't get more secure than that. Um, I have a, however, in I this case, the field just doesn't work for it. No, no, it totally yeah. doesn't. I mean, I have a, and, and I think it should be obvious that it doesn't. I have a slightly different hypothesis, which I think you might appreciate considering how you feel about the modern system. I suspect it's just widespread depression that uh, that is really fucking people up and just an overwhelming desire oh. to escape it. And that sort of thing, prioritizing happiness to such a degree is is a a way of coping with that that's half of my guess too like being happy is awesome yeah, i wish i could feel like this all the time yeah yeah thing is i see um i see intelligent people make this in other fields than like ethics too i just see them i see um people trying to make a a music theory for example through like one or like a couple of, of, of basic uh, premises that just aren't like, and an entire, you know, music aesthetic and music theory and psychoacoustic theory all together from like one or a couple of, of you know, hmm. uh, basic premises. And you can like get some of the way there. Uh, you can definitely get some very useful theory out of doing this, but you're just going to like fall short. Uh, and, uh, and I see intelligent people doing this in general. I think it's a sort of, I think it's like looking for rigor in. Uh, yeah, I think it's in what intelligent people do. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we want to pick things apart and understand them. It's like a. It's I think it's like a, the... a systemizing, systemizing versus empathizing thing. Do you know, mm. like, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think people high, like people who are highly systemizing, uh, do this a lot. It like might be like just empathizing the, do this. the ultimate generalized nerd snipe. Yep. Try, to, <laughs> try to make it yeah. down to the simplest possible foundational. Man, when I was a little kid, I, yeah. I have these notebooks where I would like try to write my like grand theories of everything that were just totally bonkers, but mm -hmm. <laughs> there's something about it that's, I guess, it's yeah, just fun. Yeah. So what I like about Les Ron is it teaches both of these ways of thinking, because like both the way of thinking where you boil things down, like the very sort of reductionist way of thinking and, and also the very intuitive way of thinking. A lot of people who care a lot about rationality, they have, um, you know, the Daniel, Daniel Kahneman, um, 
system one and system two. Uh, I forget which one is the slow and one. The slow one is one, right? Yeah, so slow one is one? Slow one is two. Slow one is two, I think. I, I hate that they just named them one and two instead of fast and slow. And I know that was intentional, and it was a bad intention. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, system one is quick, system two is good. Let's say, like, system one the, uh, is, is emotional and irrational, and, uh, and a rational person relies on system two. But, like, uh, but, but Yudkovsky is like, no, you gotta, like, improve both. You gotta improve both your, like, um, yeah. With your quick heuristics and also your like slow derivative, uh, because you use both of them for reasoning, of course. So you, so you need to improve both. And I like that a lot about this round because what you'll usually find is that people learn one or the other skill sets. Like it's actually very few people who have developed both, uh, ways of thinking, both the empathizing way of thinking and the systemizing way of thinking. But, uh, but, I, um, the best of less round is care about both. <laughs> yeah. I agree, which is a great thing about less wrong and which is why we're reading the sequences and, we will finish the sequence by uh, reading his summary of this post and basically uh, a large fraction of what he's written up to this point boils down to he's trying to finally explain to people that in the end, the only process that reliably regenerates all the local decisions you would make given your morality is your morality, hmm. which is a heckin' hard thing right. to program. Yeah, I think that it's a bit subjective too. I mean, there are people who are pro-wireheading and even they have thought it through. And I just disagree with that, like, down to the core of my being. Uh, <laughs> there's a point where I think that we can't find universal morality for humans. And I wonder how that's going to play into <laughs> aligning AIs. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I care actually a lot less about feelings of happiness, like happy qualia or whatever, than uh, than most people do. And including most, most rationalists, uh, <laughs> I think I, um, I, would, I would actually prefer like an an, uh, an explicitly unhappy but interesting uh, but highly interesting life to a sort of just moderately interesting but happy life hmm. i think <laughs> i agree actually i would have to think about that it depends on how unhappy yeah because there's a level of unhappiness <laughs> that is hard to bear yes um i think i would still prefer it <laughs> okay well this is a uh, a bit extreme, I think. But uh. For next time, we will be reading the posts Evapor Evaporative Cooling of Group Beliefs, Where None Dare Urge Restraint, or sorry, When None Dare Urge Restraint, and The Robber's Cave Experiment. And uh, one last thing, actually, since we were talking just now about Less Wrong and the community and the posts, I please, let's, let's make this real quick because we're running very low on time, but um, would you consider less wrong people to be uh, more like communitarians or more like aristocrats or something else entirely? Well, when I first got interested, it was definitely a lot, it was definitely very aristocratic. I think it's become somewhat less so over the years. I'm not quite sure, uh, but I definitely get the impression that the community has been somewhat mainstreamed compared to back then. Um, it's still not, it's still not mainstream by any means. It still has a way higher proportion of aristocrats than in most places. Um, but I think it sort of might be on the decline. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Right on. Do you, I wonder, like people sometimes talk about creating less wrong communities and stuff and it never seems to go that far. Is it probably just because we don't have a lot of communitarians, so we're not good at that shit? 
<laughs> That's a hypothesis. Day, Question uh, for another day. Yeah. So I think actually, I think actually, on, on the country, I think actually, aristocrats tend to be the one to create communities and sort of, um, and communitarians don't really know what to do without aristocrats sort of setting working institutions and working communities up for them. Huh. And, uh, all right. Um, Let us end this episode like we end every episode by thanking one of our patrons who are among the most aristocratic of people for they have the high-mindedness and excess cash to help support uh, us in our... Oh, that was good. <laughs> in, in our attempts. <laughs> that world domination and monarchy. Yeah, exactly. But we'll get there eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen for Monarch, TM. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to butcher this. Um, Anders Hoytfeldt. Anders Hoytfeld, thank you, you the man. I hope I didn't pronounce your name too terribly. Uh, you rock. Anders uh, Anna's Hoytfeld for Monarch. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you have my vote, Anders. Appreciate it. Right. No, it doesn't matter if he has your vote, because votes don't matter. He has your support in the military uprising. That's a good point, yes. I'll throw my hat in behind you, for, what it, for whatever it's worth, which I guess is not that much, depending cool. on how many guns you already have. Yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> thank you Anders and also again thank you Cornelius for joining us one last time can you plug that thank you uh, for having me oh yeah can you plug that substack one last time esotericmusings.substack.com fantastic for all your hereditary monarchy needs we will link it uh, in the show notes as well as a few other things that he mentioned thanks everybody for joining us thanks Cornelius thanks everybody right, bye everybody